is Operation Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories and getting right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host Christopher Dean. Spoiler alert! Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. The film over your eyes, Batman with Drew Missing. The Dark Knight. Is he really the hero we need or have we been consuming and craving indoctrination for so long that he's exactly the hero we deserve? We're going to take a look at what's going on beneath the cow coming up right here on Operation Red Pill, the film over your eyes. Gentlemen, Nightwing aficionados and Robin Hood wannabes. No matter who you are, everyone from across the podverse, welcome back to another segment of the film over your eyes, where we try to help you see the subtle messaging embedded in popular TV shows and films, many of which have content that is aimed at reprogramming your mind so you think less like Christ and more like Satan. Now, Alfred has tasked us with several items to discuss today, including the archetypes contained in Batman's big screen debut, the idea of vigilante justice and whether or not it's the heroic slash Christian path that we should be walking. And finally, can movies be so demonically inspired that they're capable of carrying multiple allegorical meanings? Now, before we get into all of that, cue up your batarangs because you need to help me find Mr. Christopher Dean. How's it going, bro? What's happening, baby? How we doing? Oh, we are doing great. We What's are got you chuckling over there? Uh, just your, your, your handling of that, that intro is always fantastic to me. Oh, man, I do appreciate it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Everybody using their batarangs? Yeah, oh, was, I had to go back nice. into into my Batman Arkham City experiences <laughs> on PlayStation just to have that one have at it. Speaking of Batman, listen, we are about to step into sacred territory here. Mm-hmm. There are listeners across the podverse that have begged us, pleaded desperately with us <laughs> to stay away from the And I got to say, we tried. We really did. We didn't want to actually lift up the cow. We didn't want to see what was going on beneath the cape. We didn't want to turn the lights on inside the back cave and see the guano. But unfortunately, (laughs) we can't let anyone have a sacred cow around here. And so we had to do what most people would consider to be the unthinkable, Christopher. We had to not only shine the divine spotlight of gospel on Batman. But we had to call in some help, some assistance. We had to go to the Queensland down there in Victoria, Australia, and pull some help from a Mr. Missing to help us take a look at what was happening with this film over people's eyes. Yeah. That's all you got is yeah. <laughs> that is the most anticlimactic no, response. No, it, no, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, when Jonathan was, has these one word responses, <laughs> I see where he gets them from. No, I had I had stuff that I was going to say. And then you just kind of took it and introduced Drew. 
And I, I was like, oh, that's really good. And was completely unprepared for you to hand it over to me. And just, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I was so enthralled with no, everything no, Chris, that you had to say. You're a co-host. <laughs> you have to co-host with me. Just, I was yeah. like, oh, ooh, this is fit to be a good episode. I got Jason Spears and Drew missing. What are they going to say next? Yeah. Oh, wait. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm thinking about making a new sound effect so you know forget the crickets yeah oh my bad just dead silent my bad well with all that said Christopher help me welcome Drew Missing to the show Drew Missing you're missing out buddy thanks guys it's an honor to be on here and I can't wait to get stuck into this film that we've uh, decided to take a little trip down yeah, and you you threw it up at us as a as a challenge, if I remember correctly. I did. You guys have done so well on the Marvel side of things. So clearly, you boys are a bit of a, a Marvel fanboy base. But I think DC is really where it's at. And the Batman franchise of 1989, the Michael Keaton films, they really set the tone for superhero movies. So I think this one's going to be pretty special. See, okay. Drew, I was going to ask you, which one are you if you're a Marvel or DC guy? But I'm a DC boy. You're a DC guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I haven't been able to decide for myself. I, I think I ended up becoming more Marvel just de facto because I think they had more content out uh, that I, I found more myself more attracted to, especially the later stuff than DC. DC was all over the place. I think but, DC hit me in my formative years. It that's what I was going to so say. early for me. Yeah, like I grew up watching the Batman animated series. Like it, I'd run home, grab that, get some chocolate milk, and we just going to see what's happening with Batman and Joker. <laughs> Yeah, see, I, 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 I'm, I'm a little bit similar, believe it or not, since we're, you know, opposite in almost every way. But I'm probably more. Did you not have chocolate milk? <laughs> no, I had white milk. <laughs> I figured that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I tend to lean more towards Marvel, but not from a, a visceral perspective. Mm. Like I, I like them both equally, but I've just been surrounded by more Marvel content. So I feel more comfortable in those waters. Like for whatever reason, the comic books that I had growing up were, well, either Star Wars or Marvel comics. And I didn't have any DC, even though I liked all of them equally. So it, it's interesting. Well, I, I tell you what, Batman as a character is one of those sacred cows for some people. TJ? Now, yeah, I was going to say, we, we've got a <laughs> listener, longtime friend of the show, TJ. And he's been telling me since day one, do not touch Batman. <laughs> oh, I'll take all responsibility on this. Sorry, TJ. <laughs> yes, yes, please, Drew, because he's gonna he's gonna be yelling at me. I'm quite sure as soon as he hears this. And so, since we have to tackle Batman, you know, if we should feel the need to rip off both wings, don't be hesitant. For TJ's sake, <laughs> I, I I don't want him to feel as though we didn't do a thorough job. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, I'll right. put him out of his misery. That's okay. <laughs> I won't make it linger. <laughs> But for anybody who's who's listening that is new to the Film Over Your Eyes series, this is a series that we have where we take a, a deeper look at films in order to see some of the, the programming that's embedded in the film. And around here, one of the things we like to say is that every movie has at least three stories that are being told. The first story is in the foreground, and that's the main story. So if you were going on Google or Wikipedia and look up something about Batman, typically this story, the main, the foreground information is what they're going to be talking about there. 
But then there's a second story being told in the midground, and that has to do with the themes and ideas. This is the type of stuff that you get when you go to YouTube or you look for movie breakdowns, and maybe you'll come across people like Ryan Airy from Screen Crush or Eric Voss from New Rockstars, and they'll give you a lot of these gems and Easter eggs and things. And you're like, oh my gosh, never saw any of that. But then there is a third story being told, and it's a much more subtle story that's happening in the background, and that's the spiritual messaging. And it normally takes a biblically-based analysis in order to unveil what's happening at that level. And that's where you go to places like LED Ministries or even right here at ORP in order to get that. And so I think what we want to do is start off, as we normally like to, with a quick trailer for a person to hear, to, to get on bar with what's happening with Batman. Every punk in this town is scared stiff. They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. Is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? Vicky Vale. Bruce Wayne. And what do you do for a living? He's a tired old man. Can't run this city without me. Your luck is about to change. Terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. He's out there right now. And I've got to go to work. you're right i don't know i don't know if you've programmed my mind because it's it's definitely uh, a part of it but when you said that they definitely um shoot the trailers way different now than they did in the 80s mm -hmm. and you were like oh when they when they cut the scenes and the music stops and you were like it's painful and i'm over here going it can't be painful there's no way and listening to this i was like ouch yeah, that's oh, every one of those so, some pretty brutal, abrupt changes there. <laughs> they were. I'm like, I don't know how I survived the 80s. But at the same time, you watch a trailer from today and you essentially watch the whole movie. It's, the spoilers are out there. Every main plot is dissected in that one, two-minute trailer. At well, least in I the past with those abrupt cuts, you could kind of try to figure out what was going on in the film that was coming out. Well, you know, sometimes, but then now you'll have trailers that'll contain content that's not even in the film. Like Gamora, yes, scenes. like topless in bed or whatever. Not exactly what I was going for. I was thinking more like in Spider-Man when they had Michael Keaton's character that actually showed up and then wasn't in the film. But Gamora topless, I could understand why that might be the first thing you go for. <laughs> so wait, the Michael Keaton Batman wasn't in the new Flash? No, I wasn't saying that. Michael Keaton Marvel 
when Marvel. he shows up in Spider-Man, there was a Spider-Man trailer where I think he was... Um, Vulture. Vulture, gotcha. there we go. Okay. Yeah, okay. They, they teased that in the trailer, and that footage is nowhere near... It's nowhere in the final cut. Okay. Which means they shot it, but they decided to leave it for the trailer. Right. No, uh, one that... Like, the, the Gamora one is, is a real one, because there's a scene where they... I never saw the trailer, but it was this big deal that it, like, you know, pans away, and it hints at the fact that they slept together, and... There's no hint whatsoever. So See, you gotta you gotta watch the director's cut. Theatrical the theatrical cut won't have that. You had the special edition directors. So I'm told. I, I haven't seen it. So for those listening who may have been living under a rock at the backside of the Batcave and have no idea who Batman is, or particularly what the original Batman from 1989 and the sequel Batman Returns is all about. Allow us to bring you up to speed. So 1986 Gotham City crime boss Carl Grissom, played by Jack Parlance, effectively runs the town. But there's a new crime fighter in town, Batman, played by the very classically trained Michael Keaton. Grissom's right-hand man is Jack Napier, played by Jack Nicholson, a brutal man who is not entirely sane. After falling out between Grissom and his second-in-command, Napier, he's set up with the police and falls into a vat of chemicals and is assumed dead. However, he soon reappears as the Joker and starts a reign of terror in Gotham City. Meanwhile, reporter Vicki Vale, played by the very beautiful Kim Basinger, is in the city to do an article on Batman and unwittingly falls for the billionaire behind the cow, Bruce Wayne. Three years later, in Batman Returns, just as megalomaniac businessman Max Schreck, who was played by the terrifying Christopher Walken, sets in motion a plot against Gotham City, he is reluctantly joined by the Penguin, played by Danny DeVito, who was a deformed and rather deranged man who was abandoned, who was abandoned at birth by his respectable parents. Penguin sets out to liberate Gotham. The plot is further complicated in a story of attraction to the Selena Kyle, played by the stunning Michelle Pfeiffer, who is the secretary murdered by her boss, Max Shrek, and in a bizarre twist, is reborn as Catwoman, a villain with mixed motives. So, having said all of that, gentlemen, please give me your ORP bucket of popcorn rating on this film. Remember, you got four choices here. Empty bucket, half bucket, full bucket or buttery smooth bucket drew with you being our guest how would you rate these two films uh combined yes i'd have to put them at a full bucket full bucket a full bucket Yo! Um, the buttery bucket stuff's very american i noticed that when i was over there you guys just lather your popcorn with all sorts of stuff it's a bit too much for my liking but full bucket i think nails it uh the first film hands down i think set the tone for what cinematography and the Batman franchise would become later on. It set the tone for it. The second film I found lacked a little bit. I think the first one hit a lot of high notes and the second one was just that little bit lower than where it could have been. Now, now wait, Drew, don't think we're going to skip past this whole jab at American cinematics and our, <laughs> our, our snack choices here. What do the Aussies do for their popcorn? We what do you put on top of their red dust? It's, it's literally just popcorn. We don't put lather it with butter. It's like, but where's the fun just... in that? If you're not clogging your arteries and reducing <laughs> your lifespan, what's the fun in going to the films? So we can see more films. Ah, <laughs> such an amateur way. 
That's <laughs> funny. I actually don't like popcorn. Really? It gets stuck between your teeth, and then you're sitting there having to like try not to pull it out in the middle of a show, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's horrible. So I normally end up staying away from it. Yeah, but do you guys people- have like the the chalk top ice creams where you got the cone with the scoop of ice cream covered in chocolate and you bite into it and you dip the ice cream into the popcorn and then eat the popcorn off the ice cream? Do you have that? Hold on. You're worried about us having butter on our popcorn. <laughs> and here you put dessert with popcorn with coverings. Yeah, you're, you're not making it too far <laughs> without your arteries being clogged either. I don't think we have that. Christopher Dewey? I don't think so. And I mean... It it I always thought that all the um all of the COVID stuff that happened in Australia was all just, you know, made up theatrics. But if y'all are sucking on ice cream cones and jamming them in buckets of popcorn, <laughs> I mean maybe maybe you maybe a lockdown's break. not so bad. <laughs> you know, maybe you really don't need guns if this is how you guys do your entertainment. <laughs> like, my word. No, I've never heard of that. That's what crazy. rating would you give it? Um I think I'd do the same. I'd do full for both of them. Um, the first one I thought was fantastic. I think it holds up pretty well given given what it was and the fact that you're trying to do a comic book movie. Because if you if you notice in the the um the opening credits, it says that it's based on characters from DC's magazines. Mm-hmm. Not comics. Like I think they tried hard to stay away from this childish idea. And while they did that, the opening sequence, I think, is my favorite. Because anybody that's watched the the modern superhero movies that we have today, every time there's a new Spider-Man, you have to retell the story. You have to watch Uncle Ben die again. You know, you have to go through all of that. And it almost seemed like Tim Burton was was playing games with the comic book lore because this Batman movie, trying not to be like, the, like a comic or shine a, a spotlight on the fact that it's based on the comic plays off of everyone thinking that the beginning is telling the story of Bruce Wayne and his parents getting murdered. The whole thing plays like that. And it's not that at all. So I was like, like, so from the beginning, I'm like, this is clever. You know, you're being intentional about it. Um, I thought it was fantastic. The, the animation holds up. Like it's, it's clearly bad eighties animation, but it's not grotesque. You know, like when the shield comes up around the, the Batmobile, it still made me feel the way I did, when I was a, a, a child watching it. And I was like, eh, okay. that's not bad. I'll, I'll tip my hat to that. And uh, it just little things like, um, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Vicky Vale's taking pictures of the Batman when he's fighting and they play this thing that like every time, not every time, but a lot of the time when Batman makes impact, you know, her flash is going off and she's like, I don't know, 10 stories up. So realistically, there's no way the flash is going to, is going to make it down that far, but it just creates this cool cinematic feel that, that Batman's punches are, you know, more intense or more powerful than, than your average criminal. So kind of like in the comic book when they have like that blam, kablow. Yeah. Kind of yeah, like his homage to the Adam West Batman. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, really, really good. I thought it was well done. It holds up the star-studded cast. You know, Jack Nicholson um, and and Michael Keaton and everybody. Fantastic. However, I don't have as many good things to say about Batman Returns, except <laughs> the fact that it terrified me as a child and disgusts me still as an adult. And given the fact that it's Tim Burton and he like, he, cause he didn't even want it at first. He did the first Batman and he was like, okay, I told my story. I did 
my Batman thing, but they wanted him back so bad. They're like, we'll let you do whatever you want. Just come and make it a Tim Burton film. And and he did. Like, it doesn't, it's not canon. Batman's killing people in this movie. Um, and coming from Tim Burton, it's disgusting. And Penguin, Danny DeVito is disgusting throughout the whole thing. Like, you have to hear him breathing. Like, I just want to pull the microphone away from his mouth because he's just... But I think that's what he intended to do. And if that's the case, then that one holds up too. <laughs> it's still disgusting all of these years later. So full bucket for both of them. What about you, Jason? You know, I, I would have to go for, for both of these films, solid half bucket. Okay. And that's pushing it. <laughs> well, you said solid half bucket and it's pushing it. So you're yeah. really leaning more towards like a, we don't have an in-between half and empty. <laughs> we, we don't have that rating. Don't know? have a quarter bucket? Nah, we didn't have that. We want to try to keep it a little simple, you know, for us Americans. Empty you know, with, a, I, with an empty cone in it. Like, it's the empty bucket with a... With a we should have just had one with, like, nothing but just kernels in the in the bottom. <laughs> Seeds. Right. Um, I found for this, it was interesting going back and looking at this film for me, which would have been maybe... Was this, this first one was released in '89, so I would have been uh, seven God, I was when this one. came out. You said you were one. <laughs> yeah. When did you see these? <laughs> Early on in my formative years as a kid, so I don't know how I'm not horribly scarred from them. Oh man, yeah, I'm going back and I'm watching these, and I'm like, oh boy, this is somewhat what I remember and somewhat what I don't remember. And so I think for me, it's pretty much a nostalgic trip. When I go and watch these, um, I'm not a huge Batman guy, but Michael Keaton is by far my favorite Batman as Batman. But the problem I've had with Batman as a character is that there's the duality of his of his personality. And so you've got to have a balance between Batman and Bruce Wayne. And I find it's very hard to find an actor that can personify both of those. And so normally in between, who was a good Batman, who was a good Bruce Wayne? And I found with these two films, I think that Michael Keaton is by far the best Batman. Not really a good Bruce Wayne, in my opinion. I don't really get the suave debonair and the the filthy rich aspect. Uh, I, I know that he's wealthy, but you don't get a sense of the scale of wealth that he has. Uh, and you also, there are a lot of character developments in these films that I found were really lacking in the way that Tim Burton decided to tell the story. But it does introduce these characters for the first time and leaves an impression that I haven't been able to get away from. Like, I was surprised at how many Prince songs I knew that came from this film. <laughs> and I'm like, this, this is wild. I do know that song. I was like, oh, yeah. And even if I hear it on the radio, I'm like, oh, that's the museum paint scene. I know that song. I have no idea what the real title of the song is. <laughs> You know, but but there are like iconic scenes in here that um, I was telling uh, Christopher and I were having this conversation offline. Watching these films again helped me realize some stuff about myself. And one of those things is actually how visual I am, the, the way that God's created me. And so there's a scene in the 1989 Batman where he's got Vicky Vale in the Batmobile and they're driving along and he hits the accelerator to go faster and the camera zooms in on his foot and you see that whole contraption with the accelerator as he pushes it down. And to this day, anytime I need to punch an accelerator to go faster, that clip pops up into my head and I'm like, Oh yeah. 
Yeah, I got I got <laughs> fire coming out the back of my vehicle right now. I am rolling. And I was like, Tim Burton had did something where visually this is stuck in my head. And it's interesting when you're at an impressionable stage, what things stick with you even decades later. It's just stuff you remember. And one of the things I remember wanting growing up was I wanted a vehicle that I could I could command verbally. And it all of it came from Michael Keaton running around with the Batmobile talking about shields. <laughs> and then I wanted a vehicle that I could stand in front of and be like, stop, just give it that command. And, just, and it just just inches away from you like, that's right. I said, stop. Love it. The closest <laughs> I could get is maybe getting a dog this train. And just oh, telling the, the dog to now. stop. Tesla's yeah. not the same, and I don't trust them. No doubt. <laughs> definitely don't. If they can't autopilot, they're definitely not going to auto stop. Right? And I'll be missing knees and legs and all sorts of things. <laughs> I don't think Elon's going to replace that for me. But yeah, I'd give these a solid half bucket at best. The, I, I agree with Christopher. The Batman Returns, the sequel, extremely creepy. Really didn't like what they did with those characters. I don't like where they came in with the storyline. Uh, I don't like that Vicky Vale was replaced. Like, it was weird, especially the way the first one ended with them trying to actually have a relationship. And then, poof, she's gone. And then we got this weird Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman situation going on. Um, the sexuality that was in the film was was really strange. And by far, Danny DeVito's character freaked me out the most. Mm -hmm. Like, it took me at least two decades to eat sushi. <laughs> Just because of that scene where he's eating a raw fish. And I was like, ugh. Oh, he's all into that fish. Yeah. And then and makes some weird <laughs> sexual grotesque com comments in the middle of that. And I'm like, yeah, there's too many ties that are going on there. I want to show my marine life. Trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to fill uh, her void. I'm like, what are you talking about? I had no idea. It you was just that know that was ad lib for him. That wasn't even scripted. He's just a creepy guy. Yeah, yeah. See, and I don't normally have a problem with Dane DeVito, but like in those scenes, I was like, it, it was it was weird. And I wondered how much how much of this was actually the the fingerprint of Tim Burton. Because I, I found as I was watching the second one, there was a seemed to be a crossover theme that I saw between Batman Returns and um, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Well, he was doing both well, of those Christmas movies film, right? at the same time. Yeah, but I noticed the Halloween elements mixed with Christmas again. Okay, I didn't see that. Well, if you notice, like they're like in front of the in Batman Returns, the, the opening part of it, they're in front of a giant Christmas tree doing the lighting ceremony. And this big present shows up. And out of the present comes these skull characters on motorcycles and all the bad guys are introduced oh. out of this present. And yeah. I'm listening to okay. the music and I'm watching that and they have like circus theme music that's going on, which drove me nuts the whole film. <laughs> I was like, there's so much circus music. Like, I wonder if this is how Tim Burton's mind works. Probably. All that going on. Yeah, yeah, right. But it seemed chaotic. He definitely injected his DNA more so into the second film, and it kind of reflects in the in the way that the the box office takings rolled out for it. The first film in '89 that was the biggest domestic film in the US, okay, and it was only second to Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade worldwide. So the first film had such a big impact on the majority of people who've been waiting that long for a live action Batman film, 
And the second one really tapered off because it was such a darker and more visceral film. And Burton really, really put his fingerprints all over it. Which makes me wonder, is he that type of person? Is he a check darker? His, check his basement and you probably find out. Right? I don't think I want to go. <laughs> it's got to be a lot of weird Hollywood Christmas <laughs> themes there. But as a character, I'm, I'm surprised how often um, Batman is portrayed as a, a good character. When, when you start to take a look at it, his, his character represents some very complex themes. Okay. For instance, he's often purported as the Dark Knight. And as soon as you say that, you have to recognize that, again, duality is present. Okay. Like the difference between a dark knight and a white knight. Right? Yeah. And there seems to be a, a subtle play on Wiccan ideas like dark magic and white magic. Okay. This idea that, yeah, he might he might actually be on the dark side, but he's not fully bad. He's actually doing some good things. So it definitely plays with this occult idea of duality. But he's still oftentimes reported as the the hero. Okay. Especially like through the animated series and things like that. So it leaves you wondering which one is he really? Mm-hmm. You know, is he a good guy or a bad guy? But it also sends us the mixed message that an average person, because Batman exists in a world of superheroes with powers and he's just an average guy. His superpower is he's, he's rich. He's really wealthy. Besides that, he's just a normal dude. It kind of sends us the message that the average human being, they can take justice into their own hands but at the same time it sends us the message that only the wealthy can have justice in their own hands that the wealthy can actively break the law and get away with it but if it was the average person they'd be arrested interesting i hadn't picked up on that but i can definitely see that yeah that is interesting i thought it was weird that every single one in, in both of these movies every single one of the main characters had to suffer a trauma to get to their position of, of superpower or whatever. And I, that's just a really, I mean, that's a theme throughout a ton of superhero stories. And I just wonder where that comes from. Cause, cause in kind of analyzing it and looking at these themes, we realize as humans, you know, having the power to overcome uh, is very important. You know, everybody loves the underdog, that, that type of thing. But looking at uh, a few biblical stories like Samson, he didn't necessarily need trauma. Like he was set up from the beginning to be ultra powerful and take out the Philistines. David started out, you know, taking out lions and bears and, and giants. He didn't need a um, Bathsheba to, to have him rise to this position of having superpower. So it's interesting that they're constantly telling us that if you're traumatized, if you're, if you go through this, then you can, can rise to a, an elevated status whether it be a hero or a villain that has occult themes based or occult ties to it how do you like mean trauma-based rituals okay the idea that you can rise up to a, a elevated position of power whether on the the dark side or the light side as you as you progress through these trauma rituals in your life okay which is it's just interesting because both characters, uh, the hero and the villain in this series, both, like you said, Christopher, have to go through a trauma ritual. Mm -hmm. Batman losing his parents and violently murdered in front of him. And then Joker uh, 
being tossed into a vat of acid. I don't know how he survives that. That always bothered me. Yeah. I mean, if you got that liquid all the way, if, if that liquid was was a was going to transform your skin and make you pale white and everything else, you didn't ingest any of it? <laughs> Nothing went through your nose? Like, not, I mean, you were screaming on the way down. Right. <laughs> and you just popped out and shook your head. It was like, oh, man, I'm good. Whew. Yeah. I mean, because I, like, I know I the effect that, that just a little bit of peppermint oil can have on the body. I mean, let <laughs> alone <what> I'm <laughs> right. a whole vat of acid. Exactly. And I mean, this, this would have got everywhere. <laughs> so I, I can only imagine what a uh, Joker would have had to have gone through and then coming out of that. But yeah, I, I think that's, that's interesting. What are some other themes since we're moving more into the mid ground conversation? What are some other themes or thematic uh, ideas that you found within the, these two films? Um, oh, Jason, I've got to throw at you the, the Vicky Vale name. You said you were really upset that you had this character introduced and she disappeared into the second film, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the entomology of Vicky Vale, Vicky is a, a term for victory and her surname means farewell. So throughout that entire film of 1989 wow. Batman, they become victorious over the Joker. And what does she do at the end? She farewells Bruce Wayne and disappears. I probably wow. should have been picked up on that. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have been surprised. I'm, I'm still new to the game. I'm still learning how to, how to look at these things. Um, speaking of the names, though, I, I found I found it interesting that Joker actually has a name. Yeah. Which is Jack Napier. I've always known him as Joker. And then I found that the Jack, the, I found his name, the etymology was named to be interesting. Um, with Jack being part of the trickster god motif i think um uh who was this gary wayne deals a lot with that that whole idea when he talks about the different types of of trickster gods that are present that represent lucifer um but i found it kind of cool that they would name him jack and then the the napier part which doing some research i guess is attached to the golden fleece idea and, and Scottish I'm, royalty as well, the Celts. Okay, so the original Scottish. The Celts? Uh, Napier is uh, it's a French and Scottish entomology for people who keep towels pre- and linens pressed, and the people who had the linens and the and the silks of the time were royalty, and that was associated with the the early Celtic royals, which kind of plays into this character development later on, where his character is almost represented as being a. Uh, a wealthy royal connected to some kind of a god or gods, whereas Bruce Wayne, who's the wealthy character in this, his last name Wayne means um, a, a wagon builder, which is a very working class name. So they've inverted the the types of names between the two characters of who's the actual low class and who's highborn. That's interesting, especially with Joker getting the uh, purple color, mm-hmm. which traditionally means royalty as well. That's interesting. Hmm. Uh, and the Napier, so Jack Napier is actually a play on words for Jack and Apes, which is a me- medieval English word meaning a foolish person who resembles an ape. Huh. So you combine both those names. Now, officially, they'll tell you that, that this was a combination of two different people. I think it was Alan, was it Alan Napier? And I think Jack Nicholson, it was two people that they were paying tribute to by making those names together. At least that's what they tell you. Mm-hmm. So do you guys see any other ideas or themes 
Um, I don't know how I would categorize it, but the the second movie, not only was it dark and disturbing, it ends in this weird like. I don't know, black pilled, nobody wins, nobody loses. Uh, it's weird because Batman doesn't actually, he's he's not victorious over anyone. You know, Penguin kind of uh, defeats himself, essentially. He has a, a little spat with Batman, but Batman's not really doing anything. Catwoman kills herself. You know, all this stuff happens and uh, there's no victory for Batman. And then you just kind of see Catwoman at the end and it's just very depressing. Like, what was the point of all that? There's, there's no, um, happy ending. It just kind of stops. And, and I thought that was an interesting choice for, uh, for Tim Burton. It's, um, it's, it's a strange one. It's got a lot of what I would consider religious motifs underlying it. But if you look at it as a overall film, it kind of presents the ideas of that personal identity that you are talking about, Jason, where the dark side of the other side of the self is contained within us. We've all got the potential for being light or dark and the idea of self justice and judgment to those who transgress us, like the idea of vigilantism can be achievable by anyone is dependent on those who you're up against. Like if you've got that moral compass of I'm actually the good guy, so I can do this. It tries to send that message. But at the same time, it's only like I said, the the wealthy people or the people with high standing that can get away with breaking laws that the average person can't. It's uh it's telling two stories at the same time, I think. A story that what we wish we could do as the average person and what the reality of the world is that those people that actually have power can do that we can't. Yeah, see, the Batman character has always been one that's raised that idea of vigilante justice for me. And I think it's so interesting that scripture says, God, God tells humanity, vengeance is mine, right? We're supposed to forgive and he dolls out vengeance. And I remember talking to him about that one time. And, and one of the things that he impressed on me was that there's a high cost to enacting vengeance on a person. And one of the things is, how do you enact an exact amount of vengeance? Like, how do you do the right thing for the right reason to the right person at the right time in the right way? There's a lot of boxes you have to check off before it becomes um, unjustified or becomes excessive. And there's a huge cost to us. And the, the question he raised to me was, how do you know that I'm not trying to spare you the cost that vengeance requires by just telling you forgive and let me dole out vengeance. And I was what like, was, what was that movie? Um, stick. Was it law abiding citizen with Gerard Butler? Yeah. And isn't, isn't there a scene in Jamie Foxx? Yeah. Where he goes to exact vengeance on the people that killed his family and you like walk in on him cutting people up or whatever. That's like the whole movie. It's been a while <laughs> since I've seen it. So it's like the whole idea of vengeance and, justice on your own hands is what the what the, de um, the what the joker says in his quote from the movie ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight tell me something my friend you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight what i always ask that of all my prey i just like the sound of it that's what you're doing when you're taking upon justice in your own hands and you're thinking you're in the moral framework of you're doing the right thing. You are playing with the devil at the same time and you're stepping over boundaries that maybe you shouldn't in the first place. Right. And it's interesting. Uh, 
societies bargain with that. You know, on one hand, they recognize that the Batman, if you will, is actually breaking the law and doing things that shouldn't be done, that are supposed to be reserved just for the police and those who've been authorized by the state to enact justice. But on the other hand, he's actually getting people that the police seem to not to be unsuccessful at getting. So do the ends justify the means? Is this subtle idea happening in the background? And because Batman remains uh, unaccosted by the state and he's not incarcerated, it would seem to suggest then that the state is okay with this type of vigilante vigilanteism so long as it serves the interests of the state. And so long as that person doesn't have an identity. But they know who he is. <laughs> not in these two films, but I think within the Batman lore. Correct me if they I'm wrong. They figure it out. They do. They eventually figured it out. You're That's right. what I, I thought. But they're happy. They at that point they're happy with what he's doing, so they just kind of let him go about it. Exactly. Not that you, I think you could stop Batman. <laughs> you know, with him there's, being as wealthy as he is. There's also this um this really weird tr- triangle, like a trinity, going on with the three main characters in the first film. Uh, it's like a weird creation love triangle type of thing that involves Batman and the Joker or Jack and Vicky. The Batman creates the homicidal maniac through his actions at Axis Chemicals. However, the Batman Bruce himself is a creation of Jack who killed his parents years earlier. Vicky in the public eye appears to be the normal person in this trinity, but secretly she's obsessed with the darkness and bats. She's lucky that she has this idea of beauty around her so she can hide her true dark self from the rest of the world. She's hiding her her true self from the rest of the world through her beauty. Whereas we look at Bruce, he hides himself with a rubber mask. He masks his his own impersonality and he doesn't give away his true self or does he? Like that's the type of thing we're guessing as as a watcher and a listener of these films. It's rather iconic that the Joker is the only character in this film that doesn't have a physical mask. And as a result, he's a complete maniac. The only time you see him put a mask on air quotes is when he applies skin toned makeup, but he's still a schizo. He doesn't change his true self. He's out in the open after his accident. And I think the messaging that Tim Burton's trying to communicate to us is that anyone in the world can be a psychopath, a maniac, if we don't have our own forms of masks. We're always within ourselves fighting between the dark and the light. And some people can fall one way. And if they don't have a mask to cover it up, you don't know who you're really communicating with. Everyone has the possibility of falling into the darkness. Interesting. But Batman seems to to really uh, envelop the darkness and embrace it. And even in the second film, he makes the comment, you know, there are two truths. And I just had a problem reconciling the two. And so did Vicky. And so so she left. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. All right. We can't let that just skate. What do you mean? There are two truths, <laughs> Mr. Burton. You can't have two truths. You can only have the truth. Like, that's like having alternative facts. It's yeah. that truth is subjective definition, isn't it? Uh, according to Mr. Burton, <laughs> I wouldn't say it is. Definitely. <laughs> right. But that's that's wild. I, I tell you one thing. I, as you were talking, I was chuckling to myself. Um, there was something I had forgotten about this. But one of the things that I took away when I was watching this film is for so long, I've seen Batman and bats and things like that. And I've always been like, you know, I don't I don't get it. I don't get why he has such an issue with bats. Like they don't seem to be that big a deal. And then recently, 
this year, I had a run-in with a bat. And it totally changed. Shut up, Christopher. It's not I your story. About that. This is not your part of the episode. You will refrain from all sorts of outbursts. My bad. Go ahead. The bad part is I told Christopher, I was like, I'm never telling the story. And I was as the episode was going on, I'm like, oh my God. This is the perfect time. I sworn I was never gonna talk about this. So I had a run in with the bat. Um, I'm 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 at home and uh, my mother comes in and, and she uh, I hear her scream, so I run out and I'm like, "What in the world is going on?" And she goes, "There's a bat in here," and I said, "What?" What are you talking about? Like, we're in Ohio. Ohio has, doesn't have bats. What do you mean? And she goes, like, right there. And she, like, ran, runs across the hall. She closes the door, closes herself in the room, opens the door, and goes, it's over there. And then closes the door again. And I'm like, why am I out here in danger zone? Like, I didn't sign up for this. This is not my job. So all of a sudden, I look over, and I see this shadow. And I'm like, oh, my God. And the shadow's moving. And this bat is doing like loop-de-loops in the upper level of, of the house. And he's always like flying through uh, open part and going into the vestibule and flying around, just doing loops and loops and loops. And I'm like, ah, uh, this is not going to go well. And so I got to figure out what do you do? What do you, what do you get for to take care of the bat? And so I call my wildlife expert. <laughs> Ring him up, say, I'm like, Christopher, uh, what do you do when there's a bat in the house? And immediately, I just hear this belly full laughter <laughs> coming from the other end of the phone. And I'm like, that that's not going to help what I have going on here. What do you do? <laughs> and he goes, first thing you do is you get an iPhone and you hit record. Because I want to see this. I want to see every part of what's about to happen. And so I'm like, shut up, dude, and tell me, what do you do? He goes, well, you can either get a sheet and try to trap the thing. And I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. Or you can try to kill it. And I'm like, well, how do you, how do you kill it? He's like, I mean, you know, you get something, try to hit it. If you can trap it or, or usher it outside. So at, at, at my, uh, at the home, we have uh, two pretty big doors that come together. So we open them up and let in as much daylight as possible. And I'm, I'm trying to call to the bat, but I'm like, bats use echolocation. So I don't know how to like speak echo. So I'm like, bat, 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 door, 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 door. You know, I'm trying to like echo the bat out the door. The bat keeps flying around doing loop-de-loops. And then he gets stuck. Like he, he stops and he gets stuck in like the upper part of the room. It's like two floor, two story open vestibule. And he's in the corner just hanging out. And I'm like, oh, that's wild. Why would you pick that corner of all corners? Like this is going to be the hardest one to get. So I run to the garage and my dad's got like this really long, um, window squeegee is like the longest thing that we can find it to get up to that height. And the idea is maybe use the squeegee to try to direct him somewhere. And so I put the squeegee up there, hit the bat. I'm like, I got it. And the bat takes off. And at this point, my mom's upstairs and she's like, what do I do? And I was like, Christopher said, you either got to raise a sheet or you got to hit it. This lady picks up. I, I don't know where she got this. She picks up something. I don't know if it's a Louisville slugger or what. But she swings at the bat 
and the bat misses. She misses the bat. Bat flies around, goes out, does another loop-de-loop. She swings again, swinging a miss. She's like two strikes. Bat I can't, comes hang around. On, hang on. I just can't get past the fact that you're telling this horrifying story of this monster that's in your house, but it's doing loop-de-loops. Like, it really is. <laughs> it's doing like circ- this, uh, a, a flare loop. There's like, it's nothing running circuits. terrifying about a loop-de-loop. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. You simply could have ushered it out. This way, sir, please. Here's the exit. I tried that. I told you I spoke echolocation to the bat. It didn't work. So third time he comes around and she connects with it and hits it. And it flies out the window and goes directly at me. Now, it doesn't go out the window outside. Remember, we got like an open window in the house. So it flies through the house directly at me and hits me in the head. Knocks my hat off. And I was like, oh, I'm getting attacked by the bat. So I go, I swing, I hit the bat, the bat hits the ground. And now I'm looking at it. I don't know if you've ever had this thing where whatever you're afraid of is gargantuanly huge until it's no longer a threat and somehow it becomes infinitesimally small. Right? So now the thing is on the floor and I got to push it out and I'm looking at it and I was like, that thing is so small. It was like an eagle when it was flying through here. (laughs) But it's relatively small now that it's on the ground. So I push the bat out the door, go and get some grips and take it across the, the uh take it across the road to throw it, throw it into the thicket. Take a picture, I sent it to Christopher. I was like, we survived the great bat attack of 2023. <laughs> and he's like, please tell me you recorded this. This is like the worst experience of my life. This is one bat. This dude, Bruce Wayne, is in a bat cave full of these creatures, and they're the bigger <laughs> versions. I'm like, no way in hell would I be in a Batcave? So do you have a lot more respect for Batman now? No, I think he is insane because he lives with a whole <laughs> bunch of these. They fly around. He's got a multi-million dollar man cave that he just stocked, imported bats with. And nobody talks about the guano. That was the other problem I had. That's how he makes his money. So he sells he guano? He continues the, the Wayne fortune as he just sells the guano <laughs> that's in the Batcave. <laughs> Makes I just want to know sense. whether Jason got superpowers from this because this sounds like an origin story. The bat hit you in the <laughs> face. Did it bite you? Can you now echolocate and find things? You know, I, I, I tried that. The only thing I found was that I'm getting old. I got injured, <laughs> messing around with the bat. I had to call off work. And I couldn't tell anybody because nobody's going to believe, like, why can't you come into work? I threw my back out. What happened? I was swinging at a bat. Wait, you were swinging with a bat? No, I had a bat. It swung at a bat. And threw my back out. It was a rough day, but but Christopher got a full laugh out of this. Uh, it might be the hardest I had ever laughed at you, like in the history of our friendship. Yeah, I, I was traumatized, so I could relate to to Bruce Wayne's trauma, but I didn't get any superpowers out of this. All I got now is another horrible story where my best friend's laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting that you said that he must be insane because that was one of the like driving points for Michael Keaton to even play Batman Batman because they wanted him to to do the role and he was like no you know I'm I'm kind of the funny guy you know this is outside of my wheelhouse and then he read the script and he's like oh this guy's got like um I don't remember exactly what the um clinical definition was but like you know multiple personality or you know he he's this um he knows who he is when he's in the suit and has the mask on but then when he's a billionaire, he's just kind of has no idea how to fit in, which is why he's so awkward and probably why you didn't like him as, as Bruce Wayne in the movie, Jason, because he was really playing on this. He knew who he was over here, but 
but not over here. I wonder, dude, didn't he do, he did Beetlejuice, but I yes. think he did Beetlejuice before he did Batman. I think so. And Tim Burton did Beetlejuice. Uh-huh. So I'm sure there's probably a carryover then. Yeah, probably. But he was a bit crazy in Beetlejuice. Uh-huh. I can see the appeal then. Okay. Interesting. I had a feeling it was the other way around. I thought Batman was Tim Burton's first big major film. It was maybe Beetlejuice considered to be small time at the when it first came out. I maybe, but Beetlejuice was released in eighty eight and Batman came out in eighty nine. Oh, true. But they would have been filming around the same time then you would have seen, wouldn't you? They they probably would have been, and uh, the way I imagine this probably would have worked is, you know, you're doing one project, director's got another one already in the box, and if he likes working with a certain actor, hey, listen, I've got another project uh, that Warner Brothers has queued up for me, and I think you'd be great for this. You know, what are you thinking? Send me a script. And I can see him pitching that and getting Keaton right over from Beetlejuice, because Beetlejuice, I think, was a hit. That makes a well, lot of sense now. I can actually see that in the character. Yeah, now that because he, he did, he, he played it really comedy comedy esque in a lot of ways. Like the, the the scene where he's having dinner with Vicky, it was scripted that he was originally supposed to sit right next to her at the end of the table, trying to downplay that he's rich and wealthy. But he deliberately sat on the other end, so they had to shout at each other, "Can I have the salt?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he played that comedy role into it, so he's definitely a a mixed bag of a character. Do you know every time I see a really big table in a dining room, that is what I think about? Is it really? <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, this was such an, an impressionable stage in my life. And I don't know I don't know if I watched Batman a lot. Um, I don't think I did. Not nearly as much as I watched Top Gun. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how many things stuck with me from, from the first film. I don't remember much sticking with me from the second. As okay. much as I don't like sewers and rubber ducks. I was probably the the opposite because okay. I remember like the laughing. I think the end when the the Joker you know falls and that just laughing that doesn't stop even though he's dead. So that kind of creeped me out. Yeah, I hated that. But that was probably one of the 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 few things that impacted me from the first one. The second one, there's all kinds of things. The penguin. Catwoman, the weird, I mean, being so young and, you know, navigating this sexual attraction to this bizarre character. Danny Zavetta. Wait, wait, can you clarify? Was your sexual attraction to Penguin or Catwoman? Catwoman. Did I not say that? No, you didn't. (laughs) You really needed to clarify that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I really was worried. My bad, no. (laughs) Yeah, Catwoman. Uh so yeah, I think the second one had more of a, an impact on me, but most of it was negative because I I didn't really like it. Now, another thing that bothers me about these movies is, you know, we talked about the the superheroes being born from trauma, but there's not in the midst of their character development, there's no overcoming it. You know, there's no getting past it. You you just kind of double down into your trauma, and that's not good for anybody. Now, I think they addressed this, not in these films, but to your point, I think that's something they addressed in the the Gotham series. Oh, really? Yeah, as Batman was, it takes place with earlier Bruce Wayne, but as Alfred is trying to help him navigate this tragedy, 
he actually tries to steer him more towards dealing with it and growing up normal. But he doesn't. No, Bruce didn't want to. Yeah, good one, Alfred. Drop the ball. Yeah, there's only so much you can do when you're when you're the butler. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I, the, he's in a different class, and Bruce doesn't hesitate to remind him of that, especially as a as a teenager. Okay, who hasn't really learned social decorum. He knows that he has power and wealth, and that Alfred's his guardian. But he also knows you're not my dad, and you're my butler. Okay, so do they? I I haven't watched a whole lot of Gotham. Do they play it that like Bruce Wayne is in the wrong for re- for rejecting it, or do they just kind of throw it out there? I think they play it a little bit more towards this is going to be a darker path that you decide to go down. Okay, because they kind of play. I don't want to say play with it fast and loose, but even in the animated series, like justice league and stuff, you know, Batman's talking to wonder woman and he's like, this isn't going to work out. He's like, I'm a, I'm a rich man with daddy issues and you're an Amazon queen or something like that. So they they just kind of accept this, um, psychosis is, is part of their identity and not something that can actually be overcome. I would tell you what, out of all the different iterations of Batman that I've seen over the years, the Justice League Batman, Bruce, uh, voiced by who's that? Bruce Greenwood, I think. By far my favorite. Oh, really? Oh, he takes no tea for the fever, no cray for the dead. Like he just is raw, in your face. I know who I am, and all I've got a plan to take each and every one of you out, if it so comes to. It. I was like, everybody. Dude, I mean everybody. Everybody. Like, aren't these your friends? I got a plan Best for friends. friends. <laughs> right. And he's like, if you Always don't have a plan have a to plan. take me out, then then you're stupid. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> much. But I, I love one time where uh I think he was trying to teach in, in the Young Justice League series. I think he was trying to teach them a lesson about leadership. And he turns to one of them and he's like, you know the difference between you and me? You wait for an opportunity. To strike, I make the opportunity. And I was like, ooh. Was that in Young I sh- Justice? I think so. That is one of the most underrated series ever. Right. It is good. so good. I was like, I should not be getting man lessons from a cartoon. <laughs> but yo, was that deep? That's funny. And he just delivers it so straightforward. Like, this is why you're you and I meet. And I was like, ooh, I love it. Guess that one's going to stick. Yeah, but I agree with you, Christopher. I think it's a totally underrated series. There's a, there's a few things in the first Batman film that I absolutely didn't notice in the past, but I noticed now as an art teacher. Okay. okay. First, it's the, it's the choices around the Joker's suit and the way he dresses himself. Every single color of his suits, the three pieces he wears, are secondary colors. Secondary colors have to be created. They can't just be made by themselves. They have to be mixed with other colors to create them. Just the way the Joker was created. He had to be made. He wasn't that way to begin with. So he's got orange in his shirt quite often. So orange represents energy, enthusiasm, and attention. Purple, the color of royalty, like we said before, nobility, luxury, power, and ambition. And green is new beginnings and growth. It's very ironic he falls into a green vat, which represents new beginnings and growth. So all of these elements around this character They've done deliberately. They had to have. They've designed his suit to be so flamboyant and colorful, but those colors in themselves have a hidden meaning behind them. All right. 
That's crazy. See, now that had me thinking about when I was looking at his his wardrobe. I thought about a Clockwork Orange. Okay. I wondered if there were esoteric meanings behind the orange and the purple, because I believe Stanley Kubrick used a lot of that for his his mental when he was talking about uh, doing that movie in order to communicate some of the MK Ultra programming. So I I didn't find much information, but it was definitely something that that struck me as interesting that they would choose those two colors primarily to represent the Joker. When did uh, A Clockwork Orange come out? Well, according to the powers of technology. (laughs) (laughs) Once we find that out, I've got to talk to one of the art pieces depicted in the film as well, because... I knew what the art piece was, and it's horrifying, definitely. Oh, yeah, we're going to get there. You knew what it was? I think we're, we're talking about the same one, but you knew what it was just by looking at it? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's awesome. It came, A Clockwork Orange came out in 1971. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah, so that would that would have already been out. I, I tell you one thing that's interesting, since we're about to get into the, the whole art conversation. One of the things I've noticed after doing these Film Over Your Eyes series is that the way that I look at films has totally changed. Uh, I've gotten more sensitive to the language of films. I was watching, uh, I was watching a series not too long ago. I think it was uh, Citadel on on Amazon. Really good series if if you're looking for something on spy thriller. And somewhere near the the getting close to the end, where they were trying to this whole series, they've been trying to help you figure out who the double agent is. And before they revealed it, about an episode before they revealed it, I figured it out just based on what they've been showing me, not what they've been telling me, but what they've actually shown me. And I was like, yeah, I'm getting a little bit better deciphering the language of films. You know, it used to be, I would take a film and take it all in and not really dissect it much. And then I started reading the, um, putting on the, the captions and reading those. And so I got a little bit more familiar with the dialogue and I would learn more about the characters in the film by reading the dialogue. And now it's, it's changed to me actually taking in the dialogue, taking in the character and taking in the background, what I see going on in the shot. And that has intrigued me more because there's so much being told in the background that I don't necessarily take into account. Like I started noticing the, the black, white themes and the checkerboard themes that show up in the most random places. Like I think there's a checkerboard in Bruce Wayne's uh, dining room, which anybody is familiar with some of the esoteric programming, you know that when you start seeing checkerboards in films, it's normally a callback to the Masonic temple because they have a checkerboard on their floor. And you'll notice that checkerboard floors show up in weird places that they don't normally show up in real life. I mean, in real life, I have never walked into a dining room and seen a checkerboard floor for most people. But portrayed on TV, you'll see that. I saw it in the uh, in the store in Batman Returns when Selena Kyle shows up. You see it again. It's always this hint of different things. But I also notice little statues that seem to show up that maybe would be demons. Giant statues, even. Yeah, I saw the giant ones, but the the little ones were weird. Because I saw one in Bruce Wayne's uh, right above his fireplace. There was one, and I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing there? That's a bit weird. And then you see these giant statues that are all over Gotham City. 
Not to mention in the very first film, it opens up in front of the Monarch Theater, which had me thinking about Monarch programming. Okay. And you've got Selena Kyle with the, the feline sex kitten programming written all over her character. Yeah. You've got the Anna Nicole Smith, or not Anna Nicole Smith, um, Marilyn Monroe sex kitten programming with the Ice Queen and Batman Returns. Like a lot of this subtle programming starts showing up in these films in the background. So I've I've got a question, Drew. All right, uh, I think I sent oh, you not to me. Thanks. Well, you already answered the question. I don't like your answer. <clears throat> <laughs> At least you're honest. Because it puts me in a weird spot. If I'm the only one that sees this, then um, you know it's something I need to talk to my psychiatrist about. Um, but you were talking about the the giant statues, and there's the guys with the giant shafts. And this is almost only because we had just done all of our Broken Arrow series and Jason goes through the homosexual manifesto and it talks about how they will erect statues of of naked homosexual men, right? And I can't help but notice that there's these two huge dudes that appear to be naked and they've got both hands wrapped around a giant shaft and they're pointed at each other. It seems at least subtly kind of homosexual jason was is like it that subtle when they're pointing at each other well jason was like i don't see it and i'm like oh man this this is not a good sign i'm the only one that can see this but what do you think drew um there's elements of it i was more concerned about that the entire city was littered with giants attached to buildings and a lot of them were in um bent over constricted forms like they're being punished and for me, that was really symbolic of they were actually statues of the Nephilim or the fallen ones, and they were being personified within this within the city itself. There's even a scene where uh, it's, I believe it's in the first Batman, where Jack goes in to kill the mob boss, and the window behind him looks like pr- sale, uh, jail bars, like cell bars all lined up. And what we see on the other side of those bars are two giant statues. So it's giving us the impression that those beings were imprisoned in that scene alone. Yeah, I, I I didn't see Christopher that uh, that level of sexual perversity <laughs> in the statues. Like I said, we just done the homosexual manifesto, so maybe it it led me in a direction. Well, I, I'll say this, and it's not that I don't think that they're our subtle programming hints that happen. Like I was telling a friend of mine and they got mad at me for this, but I was like, have you ever noticed almost any time you have a, a guitar player, it looks like they're actually playing with their wang. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, look at where the guitar is stationed, <laughs> right? Like look how far down the, 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 the core of a guitar player where it hangs. <laughs> I was like, look at the angle, look at the tip of the guitar head normally. Like if you if you look at all of this and then I said, watch their reactions when it gets really good to them. When they're playing a high note and they bend the string or whatever, everything looks sexual. <laughs> and they looked at me like I was just completely demented. And I'm like, no, no, I think I'm really on to something here. Nobody wants to admit this. <laughs> no, you so, might So be. now I've got to play my guitar up here like howdy doody, like really high, <laughs> looking like an idiot. Wait, hold on. You're a guitar <laughs> player, right? A <laughs> little bit. 
Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about, yeah. (laughs) The lower it is, the cooler it looks. Right, right. I'm not the only one. I haven't imagined this. I'm like, wait a minute. Especially you have to put the slide into it. Exactly. And then you got to bend it and you arc your back and everybody opens their mouth and like, yeah. And I'm like, I can never look at a guitar solo as the same. (laughs) Well, that's why. It's completely ruined. I, I had noticed this a lot, and when I was trying to put together a band, I was like, we got to have something that nobody else does. So I wanted to name it Christopher Dean and the Stiff Shirts. And no. we'd go on stage <laughs> and, and, and play these, you know, execute them perfectly, no emotion. Just standing there, not looking like we're having an orgasm when we're doing the solo, but just <laughs> just staring straight at the audience and, and playing the song and then walking off. Somebody's <laughs> gonna look at me. Somebody like me is gonna look at you guys and be like, "So it's Christopher Dean and the Stiffies." <laughs> That's gonna be the new band name, <laughs> right? And if I'm really irritated, I'm gonna call them the Stiffettes, and <laughs> all of it's gonna be bad. So you don't you don't want that name, bro? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, we'll, we'll find something else. <laughs> for your, your your band name. All right, Drew, that, what did you... Go hold ahead. on, before, before you go. Having said that, when I look at those statues that you were talking about with the uh-huh. ears, I mentioned that whole story to let you know. It's not that I can't pick up on that. It just, to me, looked like they were actually moving gears. Like, had that actual gear handle been closer and closer to the core of the statue? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, maybe I could see that. What was What was interesting to me was that none of those statues seemed to be clothed. Yeah. Like they were all naked, but they had no male anatomy present. But they look like men, so it was a bit it was a bit measure of androgyny that was okay. built into them. There's no dad bod there. They're all perfect specimens. Yeah, it kind of reminded me a little more of like Prometheus. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was weird. Like, why would you choose this as a backdrop for Gotham City? I don't strange hmm all right but drew we got a little sidetracked here you want to talk about the museum and (laughs) before christopher (laughs) and the stiffettes and you want want to talk about this particular piece yeah so the what we've got the scene where the joker busts in with these goons into the museum and starts destroying all the artwork gentlemen let's broaden our minds lawrence stops and stops one of his cronies from wrecking. He says, no, stop. This piece speaks to me. One dollar bill. I kind of like this And the art piece that was there, I stopped and went, holy shit, that's the figure with meat by Francis Bacon. So Francis Bacon was created this artwork. He was an Irish born artist released it in 1954. 
it looks very demonic on its face, but it becomes more demonic the way that you, you read into who the actual figure is in this portrait. So it's this nightmarish, hellish picture depicting Pope Innocent X and is shown as this grotesquely formed Pope sitting in the middle with two vivisected cows on either side that form like demonic wings behind him. And out of all the artwork, that's the one that he leaves alone. Becomes more interesting when you find out what Pope uh, Innocent X did. He put a papal vu onto a sect of the Catholic um, uh, church within France and had them essentially decimated and no longer could be part of the Catholic and um, Christian doctrine anymore. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know all of that. That's crazy. Now, what's a papal view? It's like a, a doctrine that, that the Pope can um, put out and becomes law or, or uh, like an or issuing an order by the Pope. Uh, a, okay. Like a papal view was sent out um, for the Knights Templar and they were excommunicated and dealt with by the church. Okay. Well, I tell you what, now that we tend to be moving into some of the more deeper spiritual meaning, I think this is going to naturally take us into the third layer of storytelling, which would be the spiritual messaging that's happening in the background. And Christopher, <laughs> you've got a, a rather provocative take. On I do. Some of the, uh, the, 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 um, the signaling that's going on, particularly with the archetypes represented in each of these characters. Yeah. So explain some of that. Okay. I'm a little bit nervous because the, uh, the quick pitch, um, didn't sell you, Jason. So, <laughs> well, you said in several episodes that I am very difficult to sell. You are, you are. So I wouldn't quite say I'm skeptic, but you, you got to make a good pitch for me. Okay. Well, well, let me see if I can convince you <clears throat> or at least raise some questions and, and maybe how the actual structure of these characters are set up. And again, I think it's that Gnostic view that God is the bad guy, God and Jesus are the bad guy, and Satan is really the good guy. You know, it turns the whole thing on its head. Okay. So in the first one, Batman 1989, we have Grissom as the mob boss, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, Jack is his second. And uh, there's even this, this real interesting conversation between the two of them. Let me play it for you real quick. Carl, uh, we get somebody else to do this and the fumes in that place. Jack. It's an important job. I need someone I can trust. <laughs> you are my number one guy. So if, if you're looking at it, that the that Grissom plays the God archetype, and we see this through a bunch of different movies, that the actual father God archetype is kind of this background character that isn't able to do anything. Um, you know, he has this kind of position of authority, but doesn't really affect change. He's just kind of ineffectual. Like if you look at the, uh, um, I think it was the first Guardians of the Galaxy, where you had Ronan, and he was like the Christ archetype, and then... Thanos would have been the father God archetype. Well, he, all he does is just show up and complain a little bit. And everyone's like, oh, he's the most powerful, but he does nothing. And, and because in Christianity, the father and the son have such a, a perfect relationship with one another. If you're inverting the story, then you have to distort the relationship. And that's exactly what we see here. Um, actually, Jack is sleeping with Grissom's 
woman. So this whole thing is a ploy to just send him to his death. You know, and we, if you take John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So you have here the mob boss, the God archetype, sending the, the Christ archetype to his death. And if, if those models actually hold up, then th- that whole conversation, he's like, man, can we get somebody else to do this? I'm not really about it. Sounds, to, at least to me, very reminiscent to the whole Garden of Gethsemane conversation where Jesus is like, you know, if there's any way, can this cut pass from me? He's like, but not my will, your will be done, right? So that's kind of this conversation that Jack, the Christ archetype, is having with, with the God archetype. So, so can I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead. What makes Jack the Christ archetype? Well, he's the, the second, you know, he's the number one guy to the mob boss. And then when he's sent by his boss to do this uh, job to like get all the information out of um, the, the chemical plant, he ends up dying. Well, everyone thinks add, that he dies. Can do I what? add a cherry to the top of that? Let me sure. add a cherry to the top of your, because I think you're absolutely nailing it. The, the chemical plant is called Axis Chemicals. Axis in Latin literally translates to where heaven and earth are connected. Okay, Christopher, I'd like to officially <laughs> rescind my, my objection. I'm going to go on the side of Drew. I, I agree now that this would be the Christ archetype. Okay, all right. Thank you for that, Drew. <laughs> I just needed you the whole time. <laughs> so I think but it's in-, in my defense, though. I just get a set of notes and these are the most skeleton <laughs> set of notes. Like it literally will just say God archetype Grissom slash Max. And then Christopher's like, so you don't see it? And I'm like, no, no, you're going to have to do a little connecting, bro. Oh, Jason, you're so difficult to sell. Well, yeah. In my defense though, like come Tuesday of this past week, I was about to tell you, Jason, I can't do it. I'm, I'm too busy with training. I've got too much going on. I don't have any time to do these notes. And then, I mean, they're done. They're just a little bit thinner than, than normal. So I, I get it. I get it. That's hilarious, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I interjected. Yeah, so he's the, he's the Christ archetype, and then he dies, so there's a death and, and resurrection theme that's going on. And I think it's interesting that he comes back white. I, I too, had an issue with that. What was your issue? Well, if he's the Christ archetype, then the idea is that, you know, Jesus took his, our sin upon him and then died, and then, you know, he came back, you know, white as snow is, is some of the scriptural phrasing, Right. So we have this Joker character dying and coming back white as snow. You and I had different issues. What, you just had an issue that he was ultra white, so he was elite? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You're going to be a villain playing the dark role, and you still come back ultra white, and nobody has a problem with this. Uh, you, throw into that, you throw into it Jack as a, a, uh, a variation of John, and in, in English terminology, Jack means God is gracious. Okay. Interesting. So he's if he is that personification of Christ in this, he he dies, he's fallen on a place where heaven and earth are connected. He's risen, he comes back, and he's white, depicted like like Christopher's saying. I think he's fitting that archetype pretty well. So All right. who would be the Satan character? Well, can can I finish with the Christ character? All right. I was only asking because I noticed that he got dropped into a vet. So I was curious who dropped him. And is there any play like, you know, the scripture I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
Um, maybe there's definitely a, a very strong relationship between because Batman is going to be the Satan archetype, the okay. Dark Knight, the one that hides in the shadows and all of that, and is is here to save humanity. Well, I find that interesting then, because if if Joker is the Christ archetype and everything's inverted, then instead of Satan falling, it's the Christ falling. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't catch mm -hmm. that. That's why I wanted to know who who was going to be the the Satan archetype. Okay, and Batman would have been there to witness it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I and like then there's it. a there's also a, a, an angle of you can't even be mad at me because you created me. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Throw into it out of, throw into all in throughout all of scripture, bats are depicted as being unclean in Hebrew texts. It's the one animal, one of the few animals humans should not eat the flesh of. So he covers himself with a a personification of an unclean animal, according to scripture. I didn't even see that. That's excellent. I can attest to the fact that bats are unclean. <laughs> <laughs> they very much so are. But no one hits him with a Louisville slugger and just kills him. That's <laughs> yeah, that's the new living translation. When you come out from where I'm at, you know, scripture comes alive in the most unreal of ways. Oh, that's great. But the the to just keep driving this this point that these archetypes um, really hold up. When the Joker comes back, one, he's jealous of Batman. Like he wants to be in the news. He wants to be the one that everyone is terrified of or the one that everyone's talking about. So, you know, there's scriptures of, of God being a jealous God. So we see that taken out of context and, and inverted here. But then he also wants to make his mark on the, um, the city of Gotham. Right. So he goes into the museum and he's, you know, they're actually painting a lot of them to look like the Joker. They give him green hair and, you know, bright red lips and, and that kind of thing. And then even when um, the Joker shows up in the, in the news broadcast and he's kind of poisoning all of the, the products. So everyone gets a smile and looks like him. I think I have a, a clip of that too. Improved Joker products with a new secret ingredient. Smiling. What is it? Now, let's go over to our blind taste test. Love that Joker. Where's it coming from? I don't know. Uh oh. You don't look happy. He's been using Brand X. With new Joker brand. I get a grin, again, and again. Oh, 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 oh. That luscious tan, those ruby lips, and hair color so natural, only your undertaker knows for sure. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Where can I get these fine new items? Well, that's the gag. Chances are you bought them already. <laughs> Love that joke. So remember... Put on a happy face. <laughs> it's quite noticeable they're all beauty products as well, right? Yeah. 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 That these people are being punished through the sin of uh, pride in their own self-appearance. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought that uh, Burton did a really interesting directorial decision. That as the further this goes along, the worse they look because they're in their natural state. Yeah. Pimples and yeah. bags under the eyes everything. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. I didn't, as a kid, I just wondered why they look so bad. Yeah. I thought they were stressed out because they, yeah. didn't, you know, that that's all that it was, but no, this right. is how they actually look. 
Right. And I, I thought that was pretty cool from Burton's perspective to show the difference just as far as beauty products are concerned. Yeah. Again, people are wearing a mask through beauty products. What is interesting, Christopher, just as an aside, um, you know, if we go back to Genesis 6 and we read about what the fallen angels taught humanity. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's recorded in Enoch is, is the fact that they taught the fallen angels taught humanity how to use beauty products to seduce. Right. And so there's this tie between cosmetics and the spiritual spirituality and the spiritual mm-hmm. world. And the Egyptians were very keen on this to use makeup in order to practice the art of seduction. I think it's fascinating that, that in this particular thing that Joker's doing, there is a poison that's being spread throughout makeup products. And one of the things that we know that's being done even in modern times is there's a, a tie between the pharmaceutical industry, makeup, and the occult. Like there was a report that I was I was um, listening to where they were actually talking about how one of the things that happens with abortion clinics is that children are sold to pharmaceutical companies. And not only for research purposes, but in some cases, even the fetal tissue is ground up and actually put back into the pharmaceutical product in order to provide some measure of youth, youthfulness to the, to the user. And then one of the other things that a gentleman was talking about was how the, Pharmaceutical companies, well, not just pharmaceutical companies, but actual witches will take that further. And with sacrifice children, grind up bones, put those in pharmaceutical products and place a curse on those bones so that whoever uses the products is also cursed. And this seems to be stuff that happens on the regular. There's the chemical nature of what's included in the products that can affect people. And then there's a spiritual connection, especially if you're getting ingredients that were extracted from abortion clinics. Yeah. Like it's a well, whole nasty tie. And, aborted fetal cells found in Pepsi and Coke as one of the major ingredients for the longest time. Yeah. I didn't yeah, know I think about it was that HEC 213, I think. Yeah. If, if I remember correctly, yeah, I mean, some of this stuff when we start getting into back end research is actually not just fascinating, but absolutely disgusting. Yeah, especially when it comes from a culture that tries to downplay the existence of the metaphysical world. Like this stuff doesn't exist. It's only what science can show. Then you start finding out that you guys are mixing stuff purely for metaphysical reasons. <laughs> right, right. Like, I don't know why you have to have ground up baby bones in a product or what you need to have human embryo kidney cells in a product for flavor. Like that almost switched me over to Coke overnight. <laughs> I'm in light Coke. I was like, is that that extra kick I get with Baja Blast? Is that the blast? Human I mean, embryo we, kidney cells? We should probably be staying away from soda altogether, but that that's a different episode. Well, <laughs> Back to bad idea. Of, yeah, back to Batman. The cosmetics, <laughs> cosmetics and cosmology. Yeah, they've both got the same root word at the base of each of those words, which yep. all comes back to the other world or the otherworldly. Exactly. Okay. Like I was blown away to realize the tie between these two. In fact, it made me. Um, it really put me into a quandary. Like I, I remember Drew talking to Christopher about this. I, I know that 
having spent so much time being conditioned by the world, even my idea of what my eye is naturally drawn to, I'm naturally drawn more to to a female that is made up. Right, it has a little bit more makeup. There is a threshold. I don't like the whole caked on <laughs> makeup thing, right? But if you use an if you use some makeup to 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 at least cover up a blemish, or if you use it to accentuate, I like that. But one of the things I noticed, um, and TikTok was very helpful for this, is you can see the before and after. You can see side by sides, and I would see the same woman in two different states and i'm like one state i like one state i really don't like just naturally and the thought that came to me was has my eye been conditioned to like a certain state or type of woman that is a that is using tactics that have been employed by fallen angels and it's huh. the idea of accepting that this is just enhancing the natural beauty. We've got the understanding now. We've got the perception that they're just enhancing what they've already got. That's what we're led to believe anyway. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Did you ever watch that? Any of those uh, Bailey Sarian videos that I sent you? You talking to me or Drew? You, Jason. Oh, that'd be a negative. Okay. So it, it's interesting. Um, uh, not the best source of information. I think she does okay. Uh, but... Uh, her name's Bailey Sarian and she does, I think every Tuesday she does murder mystery and makeup. Is this the girl that you sent me that was doing makeup while she was talking? Yeah, she does. She does. She picks a topic and she goes through the whole thing. It's usually about an hour. And as she's doing it, she's putting on makeup. So she begins with zero makeup mm -hmm. and you're like, why am I watching this? <laughs> <laughs> and then as she goes on, you're like, you know what? This, this, this That's episode okay. is getting more and more interesting. I right. like what she's saying. And it's just interesting um, to, to watch it and be aware of your change of interaction with the subject matter, your change of interaction with her as her face begins to change. And she does a good job, and a lot of it's over the top, like stage makeup and stuff, but mm. excellent job. It's just weird to watch it happen. So if anyone's curious about that, um, maybe I'll put links in our show notes or something. I'm not suggesting that, that women should never wear makeup. No, but you would never I, suggest that. <laughs> I, I would not at all. Um, but but like I said, it puts me in a, in a quandary because I started to think about things like eyeshadow and the way I've seen eyeshadow portrayed like in the fashion world. Mm -hmm. If a woman closes her eyes with heavy eyeshadow on, it almost looks like a glowing eye. Kind of the way that we see angelic eyes portrayed. Do you understand what I mean? So are women, is our idea of beauty really more fallen angel slanted to make women more attractive to fallen angels? And we just kind of get indoctrinated into that? That was where I ended. And it was so uncomfortable. Yeah. What about the if idea you, of the, the blending of genders through makeup? Like the way that we see, especially this month, Men right. wearing makeup in such a way, in such an artistic style that it is now, that contouring, you can make the appearance of a female-shaped face just through makeup and shadowing. That's a good in point. In a lot of cases, you can't actually tell. If you didn't don't see the whole body, you would assume it's a female form. Right. Bro, that is one of the most wild things to to come to terms with as a male. Like, you are very certain as a male, I know what a woman looks like. I can spot that a mile away. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then you spot some of this 4K makeup. <laughs> You're like, that's a deal? Oh, it'll it'll send you to places that you really need therapy. <laughs> you know, cause what they can do nowadays with makeup. And it makes me wonder, I know we're getting a little off topic here, but it makes me wonder about the Antichrist. You know, I remember in 300 looking at, um, it was the Xerxes. And Xerxes had a bit of an effeminate aspect to him, even mm-hmm. though he was like super buff in a very weird way. I don't know how they did it. They also portrayed this measure of femininity that offset his masculinity. And I'm like, what will you do in a world where you have the Antichrist who does not have a desire for women is a male, but may have through the use of contouring makeup and all the appearance or strong appearance of a female. Like it Hmm. throws your mind to a lot of these warped places. Yeah. It's wild, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what this has to do with Batman, I'm not sure. Just something we felt like we need to get off our chest here. (laughs) Well, I mean, if we're talking about all of, all of the statues and things that are in um, Gotham and if they're supposed to be representing the Nephilim, and and they were all into this fallen angel technology. I think it comes full circle, especially like the the point that you made, Drew, about all the masks. You know, especially in the um, nineteen eighty nine Batman, so many characters are wearing masks. Vicky Vale even gets the mask when she's in the uh, uh, museum when they gas everyone. Joker's old girlfriend wears a mask. Batman wears a mask. Yeah, it's it's really you know. And w- when you were when you were explaining that, Drew, all I could hear was. We all wear masks, Wendy, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> I think that's your favorite line from the mask. <laughs> it might be. It might be. Uh, but just to bring this this section and these archetypes to a close, the reason um, that the Joker is distorting the art and all of the people is because that that's actually what Jesus did. Um, it was Jay Warner Wallace who excellent book called person of interest. And he's a cold case detective was a cold case detective. Didn't believe in Jesus at all. Went to church with his wife and heard some things that the, the pastor was saying. And he's like, I'm going to check this out. I'm actually going to apply the cold case process to finding out if this Jesus person is who they say he is. So he has the fuse and the fallout and it's um, the fuse is what things had to take place and why at the, at the moment of explosion, if this thing happened, there's a list of things that, that brought us to that point. And if the explosion did happen, then what's the fallout of that? And in the second half of his, or the later half, second half of his book, uh, he talks about the actual impact that Jesus has had on culture. And one of the things that he talks about is art. And I had no idea. The art, other mythologies, like even uh, Heracles or as we understand it, Hercules, that his mythos kind of changed and adopted some more Christ-like characteristics. You get him being the, the, the Kevin Sorbo, you know, his strength was only surpassed by, you know, the purity of his heart or whatever. And all of that came because after Jesus showed up and, and he was the real hero, but then art also reflects that too. And you would know better than I would, Uh, Drew being an art teacher, but Jay Warner Wallace just goes through and he's like, there is actual impact. It's the, it's the impact that you would expect if the God of the universe became incarnate. When you look at how all the cultures and the different facets therein were affected by Jesus showing up. 
So I, I thought it was, it was really clever for Tim Burton to, to pick up on that. And if the Joker is that Christ archetype, he's trying to affect the paintings. You know, he's changing not just the people, but also the culture of Gotham City as well. And then, like we were saying, Batman being the Satan character is only Satan because of the judgment of the Christ archetype. Because it was it was Jack Napier that killed his parents. Because of if it wasn't for Christ, then Satan wouldn't exist at all. And there's even that dialogue back and forth in the movie where they blame each other for their own existence, which is which is pretty interesting. So yeah, I think all in all, Batman 1989 is telling a story to uh, make. Jesus and God, the villain, and give us more sympathy for Satan. I'd agree. There's a couple of scenes within it that I just noticed scripturally just made sense because I'm only in this new journey of actually reading scripture and trying to understand it and absorb it, be a bit of a sponge. There's a scene where the Joker, he's comes out the first time to the rest of the criminal underworld and he gathers them for a meeting and one of the crime bosses doesn't really want to go along with it. And he says, hey, man, we'll, like we, let's just be friends. Put it there. He offers his hand out. He electrocutes the guy to death. But it reminds me of Proverbs eleven fifteen: Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer. But whoever refuses to hand sh- shake hands in pledge is safe. Interesting. So it's inverting that. He's killing the guy through a handshake instead. And he's huh. not a stranger to the to this underworld man. He knows that this is Jack. He's just presented in a different manner. Interesting. Okay. Then we go to the parade scene where the Joker goes through it. This is the end of the film. He's got all these giant balloons in the sky and he has all these cronies around and he starts throwing out money to everyone. Before this scene actually starts, the camera pans onto this single shot of a, a sidewalk, a crossing sign. And instead of saying, don't walk, it just says, don't. It's pre-imitating, don't take the money. And if we look at the, the scripture mm. around this, it says, Proverbs 11.28, He who trusts in the riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. And then we go into Luke 12.15, Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And all the people who are jumping and grabbing this money, they're the first people to die or be poisoned by the balloons for the attack that the Joker launches on the city. Interesting. That's crazy. Yeah, I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah, I missed all that. That's nuts. And it almost doubles down as like an inversion of manna for the Israelites. Um, God gave, cast down to the Israelites manna, a life-sustaining substance to keep them going. Or what do the modern people of the world consist, consider a life-sustaining substance? Money. Money buys you things. Money gets you food. So he's raining down manna air quotes onto the people that they see as life sustaining, but it's an inversion. It becomes life ending. Interesting. Yeah, they call money bread. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. All at the all at the same time, the main float has the number two hundred on it, and supposedly in the Book of Enoch there were two hundred gods air quotes little g that descended to the earth. Nice. <laughs> And this is why you're on the show, Drew. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, I missed all those details. That's nuts. You know the only thing I picked up from that scene? Don't be Bob. Don't be Bob. (laughs) Poor Bob. (laughs) Yeah, Bob got shot. Like, I learned from that scene, if any guy, if I'm ever in a crime syndicate family, 
And the head guy above me asked for my gun. Do not give it to him. <laughs> no matter how politely he asked. Like Bob was the dude. And then he just got shot. And I was like, poor Bob. I, I like Bob the whole film. <laughs> and he was no more. Now, that's actually a really interesting takeaway. Yeah, I like that. So if, if we're done with 1989, we can move into Batman Returns. Okay. Awesome. And this this one's weird. I, I've got a a, a secondary uh, archetypal change that I want to add at the end, but we'll just go through the this, the standard in the beginning uh, here. So again, we have Batman being the Satan archetype, especially because this movie only takes place like a couple years after the first one. So we we can expect that to kind of carry over. And uh, I think that the Father God archetype is uh, Max Shrek. Ooh, interesting take. So, <clears throat> what? Because one of the first times that you see Max is he's telling the uh, the um, officials in Gotham that he's going to need the the tax breaks and he's going to need the the papers and the authority because he wants to get this power plant put in place. And everyone's like, "Well, we don't need it," and he's like, "Oh no, you definitely need it. Like your researchers are wrong. You need this thing." So it's interesting that he he requires the assistance of the citizens of Gotham to, to build this, this essentially temple for himself. Uh, but it's really not for the benefit of the people as, as we find out later on in the movie, it's not a power plant. It sucks the energy from the uh, city. And he does it as a legacy, um, you know, for his, for his children or for his, his son. So this sounds a lot like if we're looking for someone to fulfill this father God archetype, to take advantage of people that he's not actually, you know, assisting you in any way, that being religious and believing in God is just a weakness and and and, and all of that. And there's even a, a conversation between what would be the God archetype and the Satan archetype, Batman or Bruce Wayne. And uh, let me play that for you. I'm pushing this power plant now because it'll cost more later. A million saved, there's a million earned. I commissioned this report, I thought you might want to take a look at it. Point is, Max, Gotham City has a power surplus, I'm sure you know that. My question is, what's your angle? Power surplus, Bruce, shame on you, no such thing. One can never have too much power. If my life has a meaning, that's the meaning. Bruce, no, please. <laughs> but he's like, if my life has a, a meaning, it's that you can't have too much power. That sounds like a, a, a God archetype. And side note, originally Tim Burton wanted David Blo Bowie. David Bowie. Whoa. <laughs> Pride month. Whoa there, peppermint patty. <laughs> But he wanted David Bowie to do it, and he was really upset when Christopher Walken actually got the part because apparently he was terrified of Walken. Uh, you think? Well, no, I, that mean, I could see why. I can too. Like Walken has always kind of been weird in my mind, yeah. and then Burton kind of has this this darkness, and other people talk about like occult interest and stuff. But I have a whole new, I guess you could call it respect for Christopher Walken that he can show up and Tim Burton's like, oh, I don't know about this guy. Like that's a whole nother level. I mean, I can see Christopher walking, walking in, no pun intended. And he, he probably goes, your tone's all wrong. <laughs> you're talking I don't about like the way you're talking to my guy. 
If you do it again, I'll stab you in the face with a soldering iron. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that is great. I'm making. I'm going to value add to value add this one for Christopher Max Shrek. Ready for his name breakdown and entomology. Yes. Max, shortened for Maximus, is Roman for the greatest. So he does represent the greatest god amongst them. And Shrek is German for fright, terror, or shock. And ironically, the way he dies is by an electrical shock. So he receives the greatest shock. Interesting. That's crazy. Okay. So I'm, I might be on track here with him being father god archetype. This next one I think is interesting. I, I think that Catwoman actually fulfills the uh, Jesus archetype. Really? Yes. Because if you look the same way we had the mob boss who sets up uh, Jack to to get killed... Here we have Max, the god archetype, pushes um, Selena out the window. Who's so a lowly he, servant. Right, right. Interesting. And then when it's when the, she, she arises, now she has this power. But then it's also where we see the duality of she doesn't know what her motivation is. So you see a lot of occult interpretation. Well, not even just occult, just other religion interpretation of Jesus is so confusing. You have the divine Jesus, who's the one that's ruling and judging and is going to come back and, and make everything right. And then you have the human Jesus, who's like, well, I don't know if I want to do this. And he's the one that you can relate to. And he's the soft one. He's the one that gets converted to Islam when he comes back. So you kind of get both sides. And that's exactly what we see play out in Catwoman's personality, that she goes back and forth. She doesn't really know what her motivation is. I have a little Catwoman clip for the fans. I just love a big, strong man who's not afraid to show it with someone half his size. Be gentle, it's my first time. Thanks, I you make it so easy, don't you? Always waiting for some bad man to save you. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. I feel okay. like the guards in that scene, I don't know whether it would be disgusted <laughs> or turned on. Probably a bit of both. Yeah. Selena's a really interesting one because... She definitely is the physical embodiment of death and resurrection, right? She very much plays into that idea of being a, like a, a Jesus archetype. But it goes a bit more esoteric and a bit pagan as well. Selena is Greek for moon. And a lot of First Nations cultures and a lot of pagan beliefs, it's a, her name is representative of the stories around the sun and the moon rising. And when the sun um, goes down, it dies and the moon comes up. And when the moon dies, the sun is reborn. So her whole name and whole character is built around that death and resurrection motif. Interesting. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so that would leave us with this, this other character, Penguin. I think if now we're, we're doing the whole Trinity this time, as being villains, I think Penguin would be the Holy Spirit archetype. And one of one of the, the the characteristics that I think points to this is the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit does doesn't testify of Himself. So um, we believe, <clears throat> well, not every Christian, but the uh, there is a a sect of Christianity that believes the Holy Spirit specifically. Um, 
inspired the pages of the Bible. So then when we see things like um, when passages are used as prophecy and um, pattern, if the Holy Spirit is is writing of himself, he doesn't he doesn't use himself by name. And I might be explaining it a little convoluted, but one example is when Abraham sends his servant to go find the bride for Isaac. Now he just, they, they call him a servant by title, but if you go back a couple of chapters, you find out that his name is Eleazar, which means comforter. So in, in this telling, because Hebrew prophecy utilizes pattern as well as um, prediction and fulfillment, so Abraham is representing God and he sends the Holy Spirit to find the bride for his son. So Eliezer, the comforter, goes and finds Rebecca and then Rebecca chooses. It's a big deal that they say, do you want to go? And then she is taken back to Isaac and falls off her camel. So if this is a consistent characteristic, whether it be the humility or just the personality of the Holy Spirit that he doesn't testify of himself, the inversion of that would be Danny DeVito as the penguin. He's constantly putting himself up on a pedestal. He's constantly, I'm not penguin anymore. I'm, you know, um, oh, what's his name? What, what's his, his, uh, his birth? Cobblepot. Yeah, Cobblepot. And he goes back and forth and he's constantly testifying of himself. This is who I am. I'm not Cobblepot anymore. I'm penguin. I'm an animal. Like he just... That's one thing that we consistently see and as a characteristic and being the third part of this tr- inverted trinity, it, it made sense to me. Oswald also means divine power. Does it? I thought you were going to tell me what a cobble pot was. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Oswald in itself, its, it's name meaning is divine power. So he definitely lays out that idea of he's fitting that, that last form of the trinity. But he also kind of tiptoes around elements that I don't think are so subtle in the way they present it in the film that he has Jesus and, and Moses um, connections as well. So what I'm seeing with the penguin is that his parents were, it's like an inverted version of the two in some ways. His parents were overcome when disgusted with his appearance. So they cast him out. They pushed him down a little river, just mm-hmm. like Moses was. Yep. Um, and there's parallels with Christ that when penguin decides to present himself to the world or he's known to the world, it's 33 years after his birth on Christmas. Really? Huh. I missed that. That's crazy. You know, okay. One of the things I'm picking up here is that when we do these film over your eyes, <laughs> we're going to have to have Drew on a lot more. <laughs> yeah, that, That's what I'm seeing. I'm okay with it. I, I'm only value adding to all the hard work Chris has done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We really need to get this as a trifecta. <laughs> Okay, so you you did mention Moses, and it's it's interesting that that the archetypes or the 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 way that these models are set up that they can actually represent multiple things. And I think I mean there's I think it's evidence of the in, intelligent mind behind it, and I don't necessarily mean Tim Burton because we see several things in the Bible that actually hold different meanings. You know, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, um, Moses striking the rock and supposed to speak to the rock the next time to to water or to provide water for the Israelites. Like all of these things mean one thing on the surface and then they can mean another thing. And sometimes there's even, you know, three or four other levels. 
And I think you're dead on at the whole Moses um, parallels with the penguin. Because on itself, it almost tells the story of, of Moses. I mean, as soon as you start the movie, Cobblepot is in a wicker basket going down the uh, the little stream or river or whatever it is. And I, I flash back to Prince of Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the wicker basket and the uh, crocodiles are coming up. And I, <laughs> I was like, as I'm watching it, I'm putting cartoon animals in there. <laughs> Do you hear the song Deliver Us? Right, right, right. And but it's uh, an inversion because the wealthy parents are casting this child out. It's not that Moses is, uh, brother penguins going to royalty. He's going the opposite direction. Right. He's being cast out by what you consider the modern day elites. And then when he decides that he wants to show up to Gotham in the, the biblical narrative, Moses is called on by God to do it. And he's like, no, 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 I can't, I can't talk. Now, later in the New Testament, he's actually referred to as a man powerful in speech and action, which I think is interesting. But you go back in that moment, he's like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. So he needs his brother, who Aaron, who possesses the ability to speak in public and, and can carry that presence. So we see Penguin, who needs Max Shrek to hold his hand as he presents himself to Gotham. And a lot of the... It's, it's a little bit weak here and there, but a lot of the um, afflictions that Penguin pushes on Gotham City align with the plagues of Egypt. Yes, absolutely. So the main I, one being, the main one being, and I know you're going to get to it. <laughs> he takes the notes when he's finding out his own identities, scribbling down names the whole time. And you don't know really what's going on, but he's taking down the names of all the firstborn sons of Gotham. Yep, and when he figures out that uh, that Max has kind of pulled a Judas on him, betrayed him, and abandoned him, he pulls out his like nuke, his final his final thing for the whole city, and that was to kidnap and kill all the firstborn sons of Gotham. Very right. reminiscent of Egypt. Yeah, it's crazy. So I think there's ten. Um, like I said, some of them are, are kind of weak. I put together this clip that I think I got eight of them. I couldn't find all the clips for the things that he did, but uh, let me play this. Still could be worse. My nose could be gushing blood. <laughs> Your nose could be. What do you mean by that? Admiring your handiwork. Touring the riot scene. Gravely assessing the devastation. This was the remarkable scene only minutes ago in Gotham Plaza. The mysterious penguin saving the life of the mayor's baby and announcing his presence to the world. All I want in return is a chance to find my mom and dad. Don't adjust your sets. Uh, welcome to the Oswald Cobblepot School of Driving. Gentlemen, Start your screaming! Oh, please. I wouldn't touch you to scratch you. You lousy minx! I ought to have you spayed! You sent out all the signals! And I don't think I like you anymore! Long dart! 
do your thing. Oh, my name is not Oswald. It's Penguin. I am not a human being. I am an animal. Cold-blooded. Crank the AC. Where are my lists? Bring me the name. Oh, it's time. These are the names of the firstborn sons of Gotham City. Just like I was. And like me, a terrible fate waits for them. Tonight, while their parents party, they'll be dreaming away in their safe cribs, their soft beds, and we will snatch them, carry them into the sewer, and toss them into a deep, dark, watery grave. My dear penguin, we stand on a great threshold. It's okay to be scared. Many of you won't be coming back. Thanks to Batman, the time has come to punish all God's children. First, second, third, and fourth born. Why be violent? Male and female. Hell, the sexes are equal with their erogenous souls. Blow sky So it's interesting that in that that last scene, he talks about the liberation of Gotham. So whatever his weird motivation is, like it, it's interesting that he's trying to liberate Gotham from something, and then he blames Batman, who would be like the the Pharaoh archetype. For because Batman's not letting us be liberated or whatever, now these things have to happen. So I have 10 plights of Penguin instead of 10 plagues of Egypt, but he bites a guy's nose off, which could be reminiscent of a river of blood, stretching it a little bit, but he steals the mayor's baby. He uh, has clowns riot the street. He kidnaps and kills the ice queen. He sends bats as a plague. He kills tries to kill Catwoman. I say kills Catwoman because she counts them all as her death, so we can say that he kills Catwoman. Hijacks the Batmobile, sends a plague of penguins, and then they all have um, fireworks strapped to their back. So in one of the last scenes, the fireworks go off and they're raining fire from heaven. So that's another one that happens. <clears throat> and then he goes after the firstborn. So it'd be the 10 plights of Penguin if he's fulfilling this Moses archetype, which I've not seen in any other, any other movie breakdowns that we've done. Interesting. It was crazy. So we're not suggesting, or are, are you suggesting that these are direct correlations to the 10 plagues? Or it just no. happens to be that there are, there are 10 plights? It's it it just happens to be that I found ten plights. There could okay. be more. I I could be taking it out of context. The the specificity of the ten things, uh, I could I could take it or leave it. But the overall message, I mean, clearly the going after the firstborn, the trying to liberate Gotham, you know, the wicker basket, you know, being abandoned when he was younger, all of those things are I think are, I can't say absolute, but strong ties to this Moses archetype. Well, I would definitely agree. There's there's definitely an, an Egyptian tie as well, uh, especially through Catwoman. With her being, with Selena Kyle being murdered and then cats 
being the mechanism that brings her back from the dead, it seems to speak a lot to the, the goddess Bast, which is also the principal goddess of Wakanda. Oh, okay. It's the feline goddess. Huh. So with her coming back and getting her, what is it, nine lives mm-hmm. from all the cats that surrounded her, I think that's how she she got back. Which would okay. then be consistent with the whole Moses theme that's playing around in the background. Okay. Oh, yeah, the, the cat is one of the very few animals that's not actually mentioned in in the Bible itself because of the connections with the, the Egyptian gods and things that they considered to be um, forbidden idols. So when these cats come in, in the esoteric, cats are seen as a intermediary between the living and the dead. So my mind instantly went to... She's died. The cats are there. Have the cats unintentionally or intentionally opened up her body to be inhabited by something else? And I think I see that in Selena's interactions. At night, she's Catwoman. During the day, she's struggling to come to terms with her own identity, almost as if something is wearing her like a skin suit. And I'm tiptoeing with the idea that maybe that's representative of um, demonic possession in some way or another. Interesting. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Not to mention the patchwork that's put together in, in her and the Catwoman suit that she okay. wears at night. Now, yeah. Bast also had had two principal aspects to her. While she was also uh, the goddess of the dead, she was also protector of the home. And I found it interesting that Selena goes right back home but changes her home immediately to where I think, it, what did it say? Hello something at first, the sign in Hello the Hello there. And it said hell, hell here. here when she when she switched and came back as Catwoman. And now that became like her principal lair. It, it's interesting, the, the duality and uh, the dichotomy that's present. Mm-hmm. It's also fascinating that the Joker, he's the only people that surround him in his life are the carnival freaks of the world, right? The outcasts of society, the people that no one really looks to. In that kind of way, it's like they're represented as the Israelites of Egypt. They're the people that no one want to associate with or really care about. And huh. they're the people he's trying to liberate. Interesting. Uh, a question I had with Cobblepot, uh, with Penguin, I couldn't figure out if his parents were discarding him or sacrificing him. Mm. Like it was, we don't want the child. And we're trying to get rid of it almost as though we're killing it. But we don't want to kill it, so we'll just throw it to the sewer with the hope that what? That he grows up? I don't think that was your intention. I think your intention was that he that he died. Right? The intention of the parents. Right. Yeah. Right. They didn't really seem to want to kill him. So it's a weird line that's being walked between child sacrifice and, and abandonment. Not to derail it too much, I was more really obsessed with that the father was Pee Wee Herman. Was he? Yeah, <laughs> it was. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I that didn't was catch weird. That. The kid's probably better off not being around that guy because didn't he have a whole heap of uh, allegations against him around that type of stuff? Allegations were never yeah. proven. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Well, if it's a sacrifice and they're sacrificing the child to something, what do we notice about the penguin's blood throughout the entire movie? It's black. It's black. Yeah. Almost as though he's dead. Huh. Or is it dark blue? 
I don't know. It's really well, creepy, though. Either way. Yeah. What would the Were dark blue that? indicate? Like blue bloods. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Because I, I, when I looked at Penguin, I said there is definitely some sort of Nephilim idea that's being expressed through his character. Even his I mean, fingers, man and Penguin together. Fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, not just like a, as a birth defect, because he seems to take on some of the nature of a of a penguin. I can't get Danny DeVito in a onesie out of my mind. Man, I think <laughs> the most disturbing thing about the entire movie is that I'm hoping and praying that it's intentional that they artificially stained the crotchal region of his onesie as it runs all the way down his legs. It's it's grotesque. Oh, that could be method acting for sure. <laughs> That's messed up. I didn't even notice it. You didn't? I couldn't. It was like a train wreck. I couldn't look away. I'm just like, oh, oh. That's got to be makeup. That's got to be something. They, that, that's, oh. That's hilarious. <laughs> one other thing, or not one other thing, but I think looking outside of the movies, and, and we know that that um, Tim Burton took a lot of liberties with the, the Batman canon in his movie. But I think outside of... Uh, of the major motion picture pictures, the the canon of Batman is very interesting, and you might know more about this than I do, Drew. But uh, Batman ascends into godhood, right? Like three different times, mm-hmm. or in three different universes, he, does. he becomes a god. Yes. Yeah. Um, what is it? Night Judge, um, the God of Knowledge, and the God of War, or something like that. I think. Of- the- mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting if he's fulfilling, at least in these movies, and probably in just the. Um, the whole lore in and of itself, if he's fulfilling the Satan archetype, it's interesting that he does get to ascend to Godhood, which is Satan's main drive from the beginning. And often at times he betrays those that are closest to him. Like what Jason was alluding to earlier, Batman has a contingency plan for all of the justice league, the people who are his closest friends the whole time. He has a a way and a means of destroying them all. And in a lot of ways that kind of, retells the story of people will be they'll flock to the antichrist and they'll they won't know his true intentions but they'll be so in awed by his his presence and the and personality that they won't recognize that he's going to be their downfall those that are closest to him and we see that in the comic books multiple times batman is notorious for being able to take out people who would consider to be his lovers his his sons in the likes of Robin and then Justice League, his closest friends. Interesting. That is fascinating. I, I tell you something else that I see. Two two things that I see with the character of Batman um, that I find remarkably interesting. Number one would be the fact that there's a lot of occultism that is embedded in Batman, um, particularly like through Alan Moore and some of the work that he did with Batman. Uh, and for those who don't know, Alan Moore is a, a writer who was just responsible for V for Vendetta, as well as uh, the Watchmen series. And he's, he's done a few other things, but he's also a self-proclaimed witch. And so he's talked about how he actually puts real spells into the work with Batman, which made me think of when I saw, I think it was, uh Batman and John Constantine together in an animated series. 
that was incredibly dark. And Constantine is actually putting out spells and things that I think might have been genuine and, and actually be real. And this character of Batman being used in that way suggests something to me of, of the fact that I think we need to be extremely cautious with taking on a Batman persona or the messaging that comes from those films, especially with the second issue being present, which is if Batman is not a traditional superhero, meaning he hasn't had his DNA altered, he doesn't come as an alien to the planet. He's not part of a super soldier program. He's not a mutant or anything like that. Then he basically represents raw humanity and his only superpower, if you will, is knowledge or science. Now, if we combine that with the idea that three times he's become a god, it seems to establish the idea that man can rise to godhood through the proper use of science. The problem with that is that when you do your research into the esoteric arts, we find that a lot of the things we call science are really the occult mystery sciences being applied to modern day. And so if that's the case, the notion then that man can rise to godhood through the science would really be interpreted. Man can rise to godhood through the occult arts. Now, that's scary. Yeah. Super, Makes you really super wonder lonely. about the people that exist in our world who we, who are considered billionaire playboy philanthropists who have rockets and cars and all sorts of tunneling machines. I yeah. question their motives and what they're doing behind the scenes, because if we're seeing it in media and in our culture for entertainment purposes, what parts of reality is that reflecting? Exactly. Exactly. And, and going back full circle, um, if all of that can be used in order to achieve divine justice, you know, Batman's being the vigilante is actually trying to achieve a measure of justice, then who is that justice being enacted on? Now, we've already identified the fact that Batman plays the Satan archetype, and Satan being the archenemy of God would probably be using the occult arts to get justice against a perceived wrong that he believes God has perpetrated against him, and then scripting the help of man in that aim. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought that all of this could be embedded in a little Warner Brothers project? <laughs> yeah, Batman. Yeah, Bugs Bunny didn't sell us that one, did he? <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's one of the various tales that are a little loony <laughs> that we get. But in wrapping this all up, um, I, I think this is what we really have to to look at. You know, if the enemy can can stack meaning and messages in one movie then we have to be better at recognizing the threats in our media as a whole, right? And we've got to be able to start breaking these things down because we're talking about something that was produced, what, maybe a little over 30 years ago. And here it is impacting us now, but this was actually a platform that launched an entire franchise where we've seen so many other iterations of this character with very few breakdowns really on what this what this platform is being used to indoctrinate and teach us. And like we like to say around here, if you can't respond and show people why this is important, if you can't really help them see where this stuff is going, then essentially 
when you when you start dealing with them, if you can't tell them why this is important, then all they end up hearing is this. And that doesn't work. That's not what we're here for. Right? We've got to be savvy enough to understand the fact that we haven't, we have, we, we live on a planet that is under attack and it's under siege and it's under siege by the serpent. And the serpent is constantly trying to teach us ad nauseum his messaging. And we need to be perceptive enough to be able to discern what we're watching, how it's impacting us and what it is conditioning us toward. Ultimately, the point is to condition us to actually accept the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. That's what all of these moves are for. You know, the Batman series is entertaining as it is, whether it's Christopher Nolan's take or if it's if it's Tim Burton's take or if it's the horrible takes that happened after that, with the three <laughs> films that or was that two more films we just won't talk about. You know, ultimately this character and this this archetype of Batman is being used to condition us to accept Satan's perspective on history, to accept Satan's values on on how to how to deal with conflict and conflict resolution, if you will, through the use of, of vigilantism and the use of vengeance. And ultimately condition us to accept Satan's answer to providing true justice, which will be his replacement Messiah. And I think it's critically important that we we guard our children. We guard ourselves to make sure that we're not just buying into this and we actively seek ways to to disabuse the, the public of these notions that are being seeded into the public mind. What do you guys think? I think you're dead on. We, I don't think that we can just sit back and, and let it keep happening uh, without at least speaking out against it. Exactly. And I, I think that that's so critical, especially if we're in, if we really are in a war, if we'd accepted the fact that we're, we're in hostile territory, you know, because any sort of warfare has to abide by rules. Satan has rules. Batman has rules. We have to follow those. And if you don't buy into the fact that we have rules, then you got to get your head reswiveled and you got to realize that this is not a playground. It's not just a comic book for kids. This is real life. And in real life, you have real consequences. There are people that are hunting for you. But you know what? People don't always like to take it from me. You know, believe it or not, Christopher and Drew, people don't always like to listen to us. They rather have this whole idea seated into their mind from somebody else like Mr. Mr. Lang. So I'm going to let Mr. Lang take over. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Obey the rules. Rule number one is educate yourself. Got to. Got to know what war doctrine says. We have to know what the Bible says, and that's how we develop a strong mental aptitude to fortify ourselves against the ideologies of the movies and the media and the news and everything that is put before us. So scripture tells us that there's actually benefits to guarding ourselves. Isaiah 33, 15 through 16 says, 
he who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. So it's not just there. A lot of people think that the, the rules that the Bible has put in place is just God being a tyrant and telling us what to do. Right. Like go to bed at this time, mm-hmm. just cause I don't want to hear you crying after 9 PM or whatever. But the, the, the reality is the things that he has us do and the um, – I just completely lost my train of thought. <clears throat> the requirements that he has put in place for us are actually for our own benefit. You know, like we were talking about vigilantism earlier, that a lot of that is just saving us from having to do the dirty work of enacting the right amount of, of vengeance or justice when – it would be damaging to ourselves. It's not so much the tyrant analogy which people go to, it's more so a tough love analogy. Yes. In certain aspects. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And scripture also anticipates that there are going to be paths that lead us astray. And this is important. So Proverbs 4:23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence. And we've talked about this one before. For out of it springs the issues of life. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. What are you laughing at, Jason? Man, I you know how many times I crack my toe on something like a piece of furniture? Uh-huh. Just walking around mm-hmm. and all I'm thinking of you know, ponder the path of your feet. I'm like, man, if I just followed that one proverb, I could save my pinky toe so many times. I actually had to call into work one time and they were like, why can't you come into work? I was like, I stubbed my toe. And they were like, you stubbed your toe and you can't come to work. But it was so bad. I couldn't get my shoes on. So like, I really couldn't go to work and yeah, they didn't let me live that one down. Is that better or worse than a bad attack? A um, uh, bad attack is always worse. <laughs> yeah. The only thing worse than a bad attack would be misplaced peppermint. <laughs> That's funny. <clears throat> but no, it's I, I like this because it says ponder the path of your feet. And if we pay close attention, like that's the reason that that breaking down these movies and the messages that are in the movies is important because it takes us at least our thoughts down a particular path and the way that we think will eventually be the way that we behave. Mm. And we have to look at that, look at what we're being taught. And I mean, Hey, after we broke all this down and that it's inverted and it makes, you know, Jesus, the bad guy and Satan, the good guy, and you're down with that, then by all means, watch the movie and, and, and continue that way. But you've got to make sure that the, the, the end of that road or the consequences of those thoughts are, is where you want to end up. And if not, you have to um, be able to think around them and, and highlight exactly where, where it's wrong. And it's not easy. I mean, one film, it took three of us to break down what's in it. And there were multiple points where all three of us independently saw things that the others didn't see. So it's it, it would be ludicrous to think that just sitting in front of a, a, a TV that is designed to change your thinking within 30 seconds and put you to a catatonic state where you are receptive to programming that you're likely to pick up on the nuances that we're talking about and perceive all the different ways that you're being conditioned to think in Luciferian manners. 
you know, that's one of the reasons we have to be very careful what we put in front of us and to be very discerning as to what we take in so that we're not being programmed. Mm-hmm. And, and so we don't essentially s- the things that all three of us have missed as well. That, that's the, the yeah. concern that's there as well. Like we've looked at this really closely and we've pulled it apart. We've tried to look down that path and see what they're trying to lead us down. And we've navigated a few things. We've gone through a few crossroads, but what else is in there that we haven't seen? I think that's going to be something really great for the listeners to actually go away and hear our perspective and see if they can pick up on something different. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We definitely don't, aren't claiming to have all the answers. None of us agreed to that. I, I noticed everybody was silent. <laughs> like, eh, well, maybe he's not, but I think I got him. I think I nailed just pretty most, much most of the of answers. <laughs> That's hilarious. Does this take us to rule number two, Jason? Did you go through all the scriptures? I think I missed one, actually. I thought you did, too. That'd be my bad. I actually got... Nah, I, we can talk about that later. Scripture warns us about our eyes. Now, this this scripture always bothered me as a child because parents like to use the most horrific, grotesque scriptures because they think that it makes the the biggest impact on their children. And it probably does. It just might not always be the best impact. But Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, As this a kid, is, I was like, I'm going to hell. I, I, don't think I'm, I don't think I'm cutting off and stabbing out anything. Yeah, and I, it's definitely extreme. Um, but I think just the, the overall lesson that, I mean, we've talked about um, measuring our, our struggles against the things that we watch. Like, if you're really struggling with, God, why do I have to do it your way? Then maybe don't watch vigilante movies. If you're struggling with lust, maybe don't watch movies with a bunch of sex scenes. You know, if you feel really lonely and you're really having a hard time dealing with the fact that you're single and you can't find somebody, stop watching romantic. Rom-coms? Yeah. I mean, we have to we have to be savvy about this. Yes, it's a lot of it is out there for fun. Um, there are benefits sometimes to, to watching this stuff, but we we have to be really savvy about the way that we go about taking in this media. So I'm not saying gouge your eyes out. I'm just saying if the things that you're struggling with seem like the media that you're taking in, consider taking in different media. I would agree. I think that takes us to to rule two, which is as you're doing these things, you're going to begin to gain ground. You're going to get stronger. You're going to get better at discerning messaging. You're going to get more consistent, hopefully, with aligning your thinking with biblical perspective as opposed to a Luciferian perspective. And all of that is going to give you the increased benefit of of taking ground. But what you have to make sure you don't do is as you gain ground, don't give ground back. Don't cede any ground back to the enemy. In order to do that, the Bible gives us three primary steps. Number one, expose what the enemy's doing. Secondly, oppose it. And thirdly, dispose it or or depose it. You got to destroy it. So first thing you do as you're getting education from more run, as you're as you're educating yourself and getting better at things, expose what the enemy's doing. That's what shows like this is about. 
And we get that authorization from Ephesians 5.11, which is have no fellowship with the works of darkness, but actually expose them. And as they're being exposed, then you have to start the process of resisting it. James 5, 7 tells us, subject ourselves to the authority of Scripture and then use Scripture's authority to resist the devil. So part of that opposing process is actually being willing to engage in conversations with people about these topics. Don't be afraid to actually talk to someone that you know is in the comics. Talk to them about their idea of Batman. Have a conversation, not to belligerently push your point, but to open up a dialogue. So that there could be an opportunity to maybe steer it towards some of these bigger tent poles so that you can move towards the third step, which is once you've identified and helped someone to see particular things that Satan is doing, begin to tear down those works or processes or thought patterns that he's established so that they can see the gospel, so that they can see Christ, so they can see God more clearly. That's the whole point of all of this. This is why we, we do these shows. But if you start watching these films and you find yourself switching to being entertained, you're losing ground. Mm -hmm. If the show is more important to you than actually getting to the core and message of it, you're losing ground. And that's a dangerous that's a dangerous position to be in. You never want to be in a point where you see ground to the enemy. The enemy is so keen on taking an inch and turning it into a mile. So we yeah. have to be keen on preventing him from taking the inch so he doesn't get the mile. Right. Like even, even the whole escapism, um, I don't want to call it a movement, but like picking up these things and going into another world and, you know, to escape the struggles of your life. Well, you have to wonder if you're leaving your life, what is being put in your place while you're absent. Exactly. Yeah. Got to look out for that. Or if you're opening your mind, just, mm -hmm. I just, I don't want to think anymore today. It's been a rough day. I just want to sit down. I just want something to entertain me. Hey, these jokes ain't free and neither <laughs> is the entertainment, right? Right. There's a cost to being entertained. You can't call in a jester, if you will, or since we're talking about Batman, can't call in a joker to entertain you and there not be a cost. Yeah. The cost to entertainment is that as you are entertained, you are detained and you're allowed to have thoughts placed in your mind. Yeah, that That's prefix of enter is very important there. Something is entering you while you're in that state. Yeah, exactly. And like male, I'm very uncomfortable with that. <laughs> and you should be. <laughs> very uncomfortable. I, I can't tell you the degree of discomfort and, I had with that thought. I, I get the I get the struggle though, because you know, if you look at Heath Ledger's performance in uh, The Dark Knight, are you? I mean, I really like the um, the Jim Carrey version of uh, The Grinch. Mm. And there's several of these movies that that we know that the actors have come out and said that something else came over them or something else came inside of them, which was horrible phrasing. <laughs> Inhabited them. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Drew. We'll try to edit that out, Christopher. <laughs> Steal the month of June. <laughs> My bad. But even with uh, uh, the Grinch, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem that dark. It's supposed to be a kids movie. But Jim Carrey said that what the entity showed up and he said, "Move over. I'm 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 going to do this. You're going to sit this one out." So then, are we really okay, especially as Christians, as thinking believers? Are we okay setting ourselves in front of demonic entities to be entertained? That's reason for pause. That's a good point, man. 
Thanks. Really good point. But then that takes us to rule number three. We have to pray like it's all up to God, but work like it's all up to us. So I think two things that we could pray for. One is for discernment. There's been some movies that I thought were were not a big deal, and God was like, yeah, you don't need to watch that right now. I'm like, cool. And if we do Question. this, yes. Somebody might hear that, and I think their mind will go immediately to something grotesque or, or something obviously bad, like maybe you shouldn't be watching Children of the Corn. Okay. Right? That seems to be an, an easy one, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe not Predator, but God's never told me that, so I'm safe. I'm curious, the films that God has told you like not to watch, how bad were they on the surface? Not bad. And 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 sometimes like I think one of the most recent ones was is uh was it Tenant? Oh, really? Yeah. And okay. I don't know why I was like 30 minutes into it and God was like you need to walk away from this. And I was like okay. That that's okay. That's a little bit of a lie. 15 minutes later. <laughs> you were still watching. <laughs> I was still watching and he's like did you not hear me? I'm like fine, I'll turn it off. Uh but yeah no yeah. I think go ahead Drew. Whenever you find it, when you sit down to watch a movie, you decide to sit down and watch something and you find the need to procrastinate and do other things but watch it. I think that's a, a pretty subtle kick in the backside to not watch it from someone upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, too. Because we we really don't know. Like some of the times, you know, Malcolm X, the Grinch, uh, the Joker, like we we get the insight from the actors that there's something else going on. But we don't know spiritually what's actually happening and what we're um, opening ourselves up to. So praying for discernment on what to watch, when to watch it, and how to watch it, I think is an essential step. Um, the other thing that we can do is we can pray for supernatural protection. God has given us, if if we have accepted Jesus' sacrifice, he has given us the authority over the works of the enemy. So it doesn't make sense if we have that authority to, to not take that and... Um, establish that ground as being ours when we, when we go to, and not even just watch movies, like wherever it is that we go. Um, I mean, Jason, we've had several instances of how taking spiritual authority changed the entire atmosphere and conversation with other people and all of that. So I think it would be wise to, to do that while we're going into things that might have spiritual connections that we're unaware of. Oh, you're right, man. I was at a brothel the other day and I took spiritual authority and like everybody's reaction was totally unanticipated. <laughs> you were at a brothel? Hey, mind your business. I was focusing on the spiritual authority. <laughs> I think you, 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 you focused on the wrong part. No, I'm Did- completely joking. <laughs> I was not at a brothel. First time I heard that, I thought that was like a food joint. I was like, what are you, what are you boiling a brothel? Never, never had that before. <laughs> It was not, it had nothing to do with food. I mean, there was eating, but there had nothing to do with food. <laughs> <laughs> so completely horrified in some of the uh, third-party research I had to conduct. Wow, that took a drastic turn. It did. It? That was bad. So now, was I can bad. just picture the police breaking it down and asking why you were there. Officer, the bat chased me in there. I didn't mean to be in there. <laughs> I was using my echolocation, officer, and somehow I ended up here. Oh, that's great. That's hilarious. No, Christopher, I think you're spot on for those. I, I would add, um, I think one of the things we also need to do, um, and this takes a, a, a bit more honesty and I think a bit more um, spiritual strength and maturity to do, but I think it's absolutely essential, 
And that's this, you know, we have to realize, especially on this Christian walk. And if you've listened to this episode this long uh, and stuck through all the jokes and the ups and downs, one of the things you've got to realize is that to the best of our ability, this really is a, a show that's focused on looking at life from a biblical perspective and through a biblical lens. And from that perspective, one of the main things the Bible teaches that man has to do is not just discern, not just try to take on a, a more proactive state with engaging with the spiritual world. The number one thing we have to do is constantly repent mm. of the positions that we've taken, of the the ideas we've allowed into our life, of the time we've yielded to allowing ourselves to be indoctrinated. And that's normally the thing that's probably the most uncomfortable for us is to really get down and say, all right, God, listen, I was wrong. I know mm. I, I like this film. It's a great film to me. One of my favorite characters possibly. But now that I see that this is a film that actually teaches inversion, I, I got to say, I'm sorry. And I got to re repent from that. You know, we have to take active positions on, on honestly coming before God and saying, Hey, this is where we messed up. And in doing that, making sure that we close spiritual doors that were open through either our, our negligence or our naivety, because maybe we just didn't know, or even sometimes our disobedience when God was like, Hey, shut that off. We were like, nah, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. No matter what it is, we have to have enough humility to be able to say, Hey, God, I'm sorry. Now let's fix whatever may have been broken by my participation in this. You know, if I have adopted ideas of becoming a, a vigilante, and that seems like a pretty cool way, God, for me to deal with times where I'm wrong, well, I've bought into a wrong framework of thinking. So I apologize for that. I'm willing to let you change how I, I, I think about that. If you were looking at Catwoman, like I was like, <laughs> especially Halle Berry's iteration of it. You know, you might have to sit out and say, hey, hey, God, I was real wrong. You know, that Catwoman how wrong programming, were you? Oh, real wrong. <laughs> Let's say Selena Kyle wasn't the only one drinking milk that day. You know, but but you have to sit down and say, hey, God, I was wrong. Yo, that it got to me. Here's the thing. And, and this is being honest. We're all in one way or another affected by this satanic control matrix. None of mm -hmm. us lives on the outside of it. God is not stupid. He realizes that, you know, we're dealing with a super angel that's incredibly smart, incredibly maniacal. But, but an evil genius. And there are so many methods or aspects of this control matrix that have saturated our lives. And God's doing a process of helping us get free of that matrix. But along with that, we've got to be willing to say, hey, I was, I was in league with this part. This part didn't seem so bad. This actually seemed pretty cool. But you know what? Now that I've got more information, I see this differently. I renounced that part, man. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'm, I'm cool, God. And that's not always a one-time process for people. Sometimes it, it takes a few rounds. Or if you're someone like me, it takes a lot of rounds. Well, I think it, it I think it's a perpetual thing. Like as as we're just fallen creatures, 
I'm not sure any of us reached the point where we can go, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I don't have to change anything. I don't have to change my perspective. I don't need to learn anything. I don't need to grow. I'm right, right where I need to be. If that's what you think, then you're wrong. Yeah. I think you're right, man. It, it, it is perpetual, but we have to start it at some place. Right, right. You know, at some place we got to, we have to be willing to say, yo, all right, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I liked it. It was cool. It appealed to this part of me. We could talk about why, you know, we can examine what it was. We can examine how long I've had this and, and what the effects of that have been. We can do all of that. But just bottom line, God, this is outside of your purview on how you, how you say life should be lived. I was wrong. Let's, let's fix the process and keep it moving. You know, that reminds me a little bit of what you said, and I didn't hear this, uh, but Dan Duvall. And and for some reason, I think of this because, Drew, you talk about how you are um, denominationally homeless. And, and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad place to be. But Dan Duvall, who I think is way smarter than I am, but he says that he's he's and you might need to correct me, Jason. But he's always trying to develop his his view of the universe because it's not about adopting a denomination or adopting a particular worldview. But he's only as accurate in his thinking as as it aligns to the way that God sees the universe. Is that, is that, is that close to what he said, Jason? Hey, not bad, man. You're pretty good. Okay. So yeah, and if that's if that's our goal, if we really just want to know how it actually is and we're not trying to fit into a click but we're trying to take on the mind of Christ like we're supposed to then it's a constantly changing thing and we've we've got to be um humble and repentant because if we're going to change and grow it means that something today has has got to go exactly and i think we we have to realize look before you can pray for supernatural protection and take authority and things like that you've got to be willing to admit that the way you see things might not be as accurate as they actually are. Like you may have been deceived. You may have been looking at this improperly. And that going to a brothel is a bad idea. That was a hypothetical scenario. (laughs) Okay. I cannot say with absolute specificity, whether it was a a bright idea or not, but scripture would say, stay away from that. So since God's smarter than me, I'm going to stay away from that, that restaurant. It's also but, important to remember that God expects us to fail and failure is fertilizer in so many ways. You only learn by your experiences of failure. That's how you learn, you overcome, and you develop a, a greater way of thinking and understanding the world. So God, we're, we're human. He knows that there are things in this world which will tempt us. We will sin. If we can recognize our failures and what we've done, that's the only way we can grow as people and become better Christians and closer to Christ. So all these things are happening for a reason. I agree. And the, the other thing is don't don't try to refrain from having a sacred cow. You know, we, we talked about earlier. You can shut up. We talked about earlier. <laughs> Sorry, uh, TJ. Ruined that. With TJ, right. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it's fun to pick on, on TJ a little bit. He can handle it. But the reality is we all have got those. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all got those things of don't touch this. And the ironic thing is that when you're dealing with a, a hyper-intelligence like, like the serpent, he realizes that we've all got these things and he tries to get his hands in everything. So there's a good chance that the thing that's a sacred cow to you is the very bait that he's using to pull you away. 
Mm-hmm. And the worst thing to do is to protect protect the bait that's designed to kill you. Yeah. You know, which means you got to put everything up on the table. Right. You got to put everything up to examine it and say, is this possibly something that's being used against me? I got a family member, got a nephew, loves to argue with me on when I'm pointing out things, I'm like, this really isn't good. Somehow I've become the uncle that's like ruins everything. And I never signed up for it. <laughs> right. And, and I normally don't like those people, but it doesn't take too long in the middle of a conversation with me when we're talking. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work, dude. That That's a problem. You don't know what that's about. We, we argue all sorts of things. And now he's gotten to the point where you're just going to tell me it's bad. And I'm like, I'm trying to avoid being that guy. But then the other reality is, and I'll normally ask him this. Okay, so we say that Satan is trying to get his hands on everything, right? And he'll agree with me. Sure, that makes sense. So what things are we saying that he doesn't have his hands on? And why are we surprised if I'm telling you it might be that he's trying to get his hands on that? Yep. Like like if he's got 95% locked down and you're willing to give 5% or maybe he doesn't have control over you want that 5%, it's me talking to my nephew, you want that 5% to be a safe zone where he has no influence. I was like, wouldn't the reality be that that's what he would be fighting for the hardest so he gets 100% control? Mm-hmm. Then normally I get that look of, I don't like you, uncle. <laughs> you know, I give like, you that look all the time. You do, without the <laughs> uncle. <laughs> right. You know, I'm trying to get used to that look, but yeah, it, it sucks. But I think we all have to be, we got to be smart enough to realize, look, every crime boss, that's how I should start pitching it to him. Every crime boss wants his fingers in every element of crime. They're constantly trying to expand until they take over a city. And when they take over that, they want to expand further until they just take over the world, like pinky in the brain. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be surprised then when we point out something that we thought was safe and sterile and innocent and find out, no, there's really a problem. I got in a conversation, last story, I got in a conversation uh, yesterday with a coworker, and we were talking about Mickey Mouse. And he assured me Mickey Mouse was safe. <laughs> like, a com- completely innocent, right? I said, okay. And I just smiled. I pulled out my cell phone, and I searched for the video, Mickey Mouse and Swiss Cheese. Have you, have is, you guys seen this? Is that real, though? What? Like, you don't think that that's AI generated or whatever made after the fact? I think it was like 1932, the last last thing I found out. Okay. So, unless it's alternative facts. No, okay, revisionist okay. history. I, I've just, that, I, I had heard both, and I hadn't sat down to search it out myself. Yeah, it's just I, two truths, guys. Come on, it's just two truths. Exactly. <laughs> We're having trouble uh, resolving. <laughs> well, I actually, I, I showed him the video, and he just looks at me. And so then the next question was, do you think that the person who animated that knew what they were doing or was it, it was it an accident? And so I said, it takes 24 drawings to make one second of, of motion, which means they would have had to draw this thing 24 times just to get a second of what you saw. And this was more than a second worth of film. <laughs> He goes, I guess there's no way that you can say it was an accident. Right. And I was really surprised that he came around that fast. Okay. But I also noted how immediate, almost de facto, we resort to trying to defend what we don't want to accept. 
and he's mm-hmm. not the only one. I do that constantly. Yeah. And I think we have to resist that if we're going to make sure that that we we pray like it's all up to God, but we work like it's all up to us. Right. What's and something else t- you think people could do? Oh, well, I was going to. I was going to ask Drew because we typically give our things and how we interact with the TV differently. And as we've learned and changed, um, but what do you do? Cause you killed it picking out details, you know, having the information on the names and stuff. Drew, what's some things that you do differently when you interact with film um, that, that gives you this insight or, or, or makes it different than just the sheep staring at the TV screen. You guys have kind of done this to me, the way that you break your, your films down and you have those three levels, especially the the spiritual war that's going on until I'd actually start listening to your content and, and looking at your podcast. I never noticed that myself. And then upon going through my own um, journey of faith and finding Christ, it's just so blatantly obvious to me now. And what I try to do that I think differentiates from what a lot of other people do is I really break down what's going on on the surface with characters names looking at the entomology of things just based on how many times the Bible has changed because of translations or translational errors. I really try to look at what's going on with character names to try and give me greater insight into what the directors or the the screenwriters, they're trying to communicate just through a character on its surface. So I often find, and it's far more often than not, the character's name pre-tells what the story of the film is going to be about. And I'll often sometimes just sit down and go, okay, I'm going to watch Batman. Who are the three main characters? Who's the hero? Who's the protagonist? Who's the love interest? Let's look at their names. I'll break those down, go, okay, so this is generally what the theme of the movie is going to be about. I'll sit down and I'll watch it, and nine out of ten times it'll follow along with the names. Okay, that's cool. That's I didn't know that's how you did that. that that's I, I'm going to have to try that. Yeah, my brother-in-law told me about the name, the significance of names in films, and I didn't really believe him. And he ended up using Frank Underwood from uh, House of Cards as an example. And he broke down his name, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I was like, "That has to be a one-off." So to see you actually sit here and not only do it with characters, but be able to do it in a way that it gives you uh, a layout of what the film's going to be about is fascinating. At best, if I do it, it's it's on the back end. It has to be on purpose, too. It's got to be deliberately planted there. It often appears with the names of locations in films and places that it's just so abrupt and obvious once you actually know what to look for. I can't help but not think that it's being done on purpose for a reason. Let me ask you this. You know, you and the wife are out. You're at the Aussie uh, Cinematic Complex. You got your bucket of popcorn with ice cream cone that you could dip in there. And you, you sit down in front of a film and it's, you know, maybe it's a surprise outing, date night or whatever. And you haven't prepared. You haven't gone and listened, looked at the names or anything. What do you do in that moment to keep your mind right as you take in a film? I can't do that anymore. That's the unfortunate thing. I can't do what Ryan Dean says about appreciating the uh, appreciate the art and not the artist. I can't help but see things now. The deeper level stuff, I'll have to actively go away and, and dissect the film. But a lot of the mid-level and top surface level stuff, I just noticed now. The last film we sat down and watched together was Avatar, um, The Way of Water. Ooh. I'm sitting there and I'm watching it and there are so many elements that you would that just are blatant what you consider conspiracy theory and the occult. And All I'll right, Drew, I'm going to go on I'm, record, man. I'm saying we're, we're going to have to bring you back for Way of Water. We, we have perfect. that on our schedule to do. 
And go I, I go over and check it. out um, on Conspiracy Theater 3000. I made a post about some of the major themes I saw while watching it. And the whole time I'm watching this film with the wife, I'm tapping her. Did you see that? Did you notice what that was? <laughs> How does your wife respond to that? Like, does she? Because I'm a, she goes, I'm a normal person. I'm not noticing these things. <laughs> I find people get so upset with me when they like watch a film. They're like, stop it. I was like, but no, there was a goat head. It was right there. I remember I was watching uh, Transformers. I think it was the fourth one. And uh, the one with Kelsey Grammer's in there. And they have Cemetery Win. And there's a scene where they um, they introduce his character. He's talking to another politician. And up above them, almost out of frame, is a pentagram. And I, it's inverted. And I'm like, what is that doing in some CIA Washington room? In a place where you just talked to me about Cemetery Wind. I was like, I got to stop looking at films this deeply. <laughs> it's starting to affect my brain. And I remember tapping the person next to me. I was like, did you? They said, stop. I'm enjoying this film. You're not going to ruin it. I was like, <sighs> What's actually great is my wife doesn't appreciate these things like I do, but it's gotten to the point that I can feel her looking at me. Oh, wait, wait for like, you to ruin it. She'll recognize something and know that I'm going to say something about it. So then she'll just look and wait for me to say something. So she's picking up on it. Maybe not for the right reason, but she is seeing stuff. That's hilarious. <laughs> do you know who like started me on a lot of this? Who? Like looking at it much deeper, my sister, my really? older sister. Yeah. Okay. She point out stuff. It actually started with, um, it started with with music awards like Grammys and things like that, and she'd be like, "Look at these rituals. Look at the magic circle. Look at the look at the fact that they have a pentagram or they have a pyramid." And I'm like, "You're crazy! Like you are so reaching. I, I don't want to be related to you right now." <laughs> and she doesn't even she doesn't even pull any punches. She's just like, "Yeah, that's a that's an eye. It's the all seen eye up there." I was like, "It's a CBS symbol." CBS is not the all-seeing eye. She's like, Jason, Yeah, you've got a lot to learn in so little time. I remember because it was what, Super Bowl halftime or whatever. And she's like, yep, they're wearing, I don't know, blue or something. And I'm like, okay, as opposed to any other color that they could <laughs> right. wear. Are they like, supposed to be naked? Like, what, right. what are you saying? <laughs> they got to wear some color. <laughs> now, she's the one that got me into looking into the backgrounds. Okay. Like she can't stop. And I started noticing like there are statues in the backgrounds, there's decorum and she'll research all of this. Like why, why are the outfit colors different? Why is this particular statue here somewhere in the background? Like it's, it got wild. And now we sit there, we talk freely about it. And she's like, do you see this? I'm like, yeah, but did you see this? Cause you ain't the only one in the family with eyeballs. <laughs> see, I'm seeing all sorts of things. She's like, boy, you're crazy. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Man, I don't think I'm going to look at Batman the same. Nope. No, I'm a big Batman fan. Thanks for that. You did the same <laughs> thing to Star Wars for me as well. <laughs> I didn't ruin Star Wars. You know you're going to see the next one. Yeah, I will. But I look at it very differently now. I sat Did down you? listening to it and I went, no, wait, but, but, okay. Yeah. No, 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 no. That, that, okay. Yeah, but, uh, oh. And then I went away and I looked at like the source material I was reading and going, oh my God, it's everywhere. <laughs> You know, it's really that way for us. Uh, we get hit a lot with like ruining this stuff, but it really <laughs> happens that way for us. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many things I look at. I'm like, oh, this sucks. The The worst one was Top Gun for me because I was in an argument with God and I was like, this stuff isn't everywhere. Like it's in certain <laughs> genres of film. Like there are other genres that are clearly safe, God. 
And he's like, really? I was like, yeah, like Top Gun, Top Gun safe. And he's like, that's the one you want to go with? I was like, sure. And he's like, Maverick. What's a Maverick? I was like, a really good pilot? That's a dumb question. <laughs> I went and looked it up, and I was like, oh, crap, it means rebel. And then I started looking like all of they have all these esoteric symbols on their helmets. I was like, Merlin's a wizard. Cougars mm-hmm. got the inversion of, of Merlin. And then I realized Maverick and Goose were inversions of each other. They're... Their helmet uh, symbols, the same with Iceman and his his real. I was like, oh, man, there's inversion everywhere. All this other stuff. I'm like, this sucks. If Top Gun's not safe, nothing's safe. Are we doing a Top Gun episode? Because that'll Never be Never in most your favorite. life. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but now it's cool to see how all of this is, how we're inf- not infecting, how we're affecting the people around us. Yeah. I think that's good for people to realize that you you affect the sphere of influence you have access to. And if we all do it, this spreads. Right. And speaking of spreading, one of the things I really have appreciated is our fan base and the things that they do with sharing the show. Mm-hmm. I think they have really helped to get the message out, which has been totally cool. I love the fact that we have, that we're able to do these, uh, I think the technical term is swap cast with yeah. people like you drew, because it, it allows us to, increase our access and the sphere of influence and to actually get the message out. So people are, are beginning to pick up on these things and get the, the wool over their eyes removed. So thanks man for being a part of our journey, letting us come on your show and being willing to get on our show too. Yeah, absolutely. Been a total pleasure guys. Um, Like you said, it's the ability to reach more ears and it's, not just isolating any one of us to one small part of the internet that we're noticing things like a crazy person. If the listeners are starting to notice that other people are maybe not noticing the exact same things, but they're noticing the same themes or the same elements in, in similar parts of our society and our entertainment, it's only going to help them notice things and, and talk to friends as well. So it's, it's a powerful thing that we're doing. We don't even realize it. Absolutely, man. Also, dude, tell uh, our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, Drew Misson from Your Missing the Point podcast, M-I-S-S-E-N. It's a play on my surname. I also have a second podcast called Conspiracy Theater 3000, where we break down films similar to what the lovely gents here do, but we don't hit the levels of the spiritual wall like these guys do. Uh, you do it fantastically over here. You've been a huge inspiration for what we do over there, and thanks for putting out the content that you do. Thanks, man. I really thanks. appreciate that. But here's the last thing that we can do. We can remind ourselves of what scripture tells us, which is we are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us and we have a community of believers all over the world. This episode is evidence of that. We are all over the world. And a loving God, we have a loving God that actually intervenes on our behalf. Because one day we will know God directly and not through these distorted archetypes. One day, we won't need vigilante justice. One day, we'll actually get to hang out with Drew Misson in person. It's going to be dope. (laughs) It'll be great. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock where we have to filter through embedded messages in movies, TV shows, and video games in order to remove the film that they put over our eyes.
Thank you.